Hello and welcome into the first ever episode of the Big Ten Blitz presented by the Floor Slap. I'm your host, Sean. Before we dive into what's a really packed episode ahead of ourselves today, I wanted to do just a little bit of introduction because if you're listening or watching at home, probably new to this. So the Floor Slap is a Big Ten sports blog run by myself and my buddy Jordan. Jordan handles the basketball side of things. I handle football side of things. You can check us out on our website, thefloorslap.com or on Twitter, X, whenever you want to call it, at The Floor Slap. Um, and the Big Ten Blitz is a brand new podcast that I'm launching covering Big Ten football. And it's something that I hope to be bringing to you at least once a month uh, leading up to the 2024 season, something I'm a season that I think we're all really excited for. Finally, the 12-team playoff coming into play. And But of course, you can't be covering just a single conference in modern college football without insight from the rest of the country. So we definitely go a little bit beyond just the Big Ten um, you know, online, on Twitter, and during this podcast. So enough of the introduction, though, because we have a really jam-packed episode ahead of ourselves today. Uh, first and foremost, we're going to kick things off with um, College Football Trends Report, which is going to be a recurring segment, going to be going through a bunch of Big Ten teams, um, seeing who's trending up, who's trending down, and who's kind of trending neutral after what's been a really tumultuous and action-packed start to the 2024 offseason, you know, with NFL draft decisions, the transfer portal, and the coaching carousel. And a lot more changes to come, but even so, it's been a really packed few weeks since the conclusion of the 2023 season. And after that, we're actually going to get into a little power ranking. I'm going to give you my top 10 all-time Big Ten quarterbacks. Kind of um, That started from uh, Jim Harbaugh referring to J.J. McCarthy as the greatest quarterback in Michigan history. So that kind of got me thinking about where he ranks on the Big Ten scale. So we'll dive into that. And then we'll take a quick look at the 2024 NFL Draft. Um, we have another recurring segment called Silent Stars, and for this edition, we'll be looking at the draft and some Big Ten players that aren't really being super heralded, not being talked about very much by the national media, but guys that I think are going to be fast risers once that draft process really kicks off. And then we'll kick thing, we'll end things with uh, my way too early preseason top 12 for the 2024 season, going with top 10 instead of top 12 because we're in the 12-team playoff era now, and it feels a little bit more appropriate. And I'll show you guys what uh, the bracket would look like for the 12-team playoff based off of uh, my preseason rankings. So really busy episode ahead of ourselves. Won't waste any more time. Got to jump right into it. It's been just a couple weeks since Michigan capped off the 2023 season with that national championship win over Washington, which, by the way, was so great to see from a Big Ten standpoint, seeing two teams compete for a national championship that'll both be playing in the Big Ten next year. Just a sign of great things to come for the conference and a conference that I think will be the most competitive and challenging one in all of college football. And yes, that includes the almighty SEC but anyway, it's been just two weeks since that game, and there's still a lot more to go of the offseason, obviously, but it seems like it's been uh, one of the more active offseasons we've seen in recent college football history. Uh, with Obviously, every year we have major NFL draft decisions. Quinn Ewers deciding to come back and return for another year at Texas was a huge one. Um, the coaching carousel has been wild in the NFL and in college. I mean, Nick Saban retiring and then Kalen DeBoer coming over from Washington to fill in his shoes at Alabama, and then Jed Fish moving from Arizona to go fill DeBoer's shoes in Washington. Um, and then the transfer portal has been really active, and it's only going to be continue to be active with that 30-day transfer portal window opening for Alabama and Arizona and Washington, the movement of their coaches. 
And so there's still a lot more to happen and there's still a lot more finalization to go on with these rosters as we kind of get closer to spring practice um, and, and ultimately fall camp. But it's already been a really active offseason and a lot of teams are um, have had a lot of change going on with them. So that'll bring us into our first segment for today, uh, the Trends Report. And this is a segment I hope to have recurring on the Big Ten Blitz. And we'll do this with different, you know, players and teams and coaches as we go out through the offseason and kick off the 2024 season. But today, we're just focusing on these first few weeks of the offseason because there's been a lot of change and we're going to be, there's a lot of teams who have improved, a lot of teams that have taken a step back and a lot of teams that have just kind of um, seemingly staying packed with where they are and how, to, how their season really projects to 2024. So the first team we're going to discuss is the team that I think has had, has won the offseason hands down. Um, the Ohio State Buckeyes, they are absolutely trending up. Um, I think they're the biggest winner out of any team in college football so far, and I don't think anyone has had a better start to this offseason, um, which sounds weird because a month, ago, a month ago, we were writing them off. We were writing Ryan Day off, you know, three straight losses to Michigan, three straight 11-2 and two seasons, and two straight seasons where they started off 11-0, but then lost their final two games of the season, um, the ones that mattered the most. But it really seems like Ryan Day is kind of shifting the culture at Ohio State, and he knows he's entering pivotal. I'm sorry, a pivotal year at Ohio State. And if he's going to go down, he's going down swinging. It all starts with the returners that Ohio State has. The amount of talent they're bringing back from that 2023 roster is just off the charts. So many guys that are either like surefire first round picks or on that borderline day one, day two picks. Um, just so much talent starts off on the offensive side of the ball with wide receiver Emeka Abuka. Before the season started, he was projected to be a top 15 pick. Um, he slid a little bit. He struggled with some drops and he really dealt with an injury all season long. He's coming back, might be the best wide receiver in college football next year. Travion Henderson, uh, he missed a couple games after the Notre Dame game, but he finished the season on an absolute tear. Easily could have been the RB1 in the 2024 draft, but he elected to come back. And then all Big Ten guard Donovan Jackson, um, he returns to shore up that offensive line. And then the defense. I mean, this was an Ohio State defense that took so many strides forward in 2023 after a disappointing three-year stretch there. Um, and virtually everyone is coming back from that side of the ball. Defensive ends, Jack Sawyer and JT Tui Molowau. Defensive tackles, Ty Hamilton and Tyleek Williams. Tyleek Williams is definitely a name. If you don't know him, you should know him already. I think he was the most underrated defensive lineman in the country last year, and I think he'll be the best defensive lineman in all of college football in 2024. Um, linebacker Cody Simon, he's kind of struggled with injuries the past few years, but He's as good of a, he's essentially a returning starter for them. He's been really effective when healthy. Cornerbacks, Denzel Burke and Jordan Hancock and safety Lathan Ransom, who had a season-ending injury in the middle of the season, so he missed that Michigan game. Um, and they definitely missed him in that game. Um, but he's the best safety that they had all year. So I think it's all in all, we're looking just from the returners from 2023, seven returners on offense, eight on defense. But now also, Ryan Day has been much more active in the transfer portal than he's ever been. The biggest highlight that he got was quarterback Will Howard from Kansas State. And it was obvious uh, after that Missouri game that Ohio State needed an upgrade quarterback. Obviously, there are a lot of things that went wrong for Ohio State in that game, but the quarterback play was, I mean, to put it simply, putrid. It didn't help that they were getting you know pressure in their face in a half a second, but it was clear that Lincoln Kineholtz and Devin Brown were not where they needed to be in order to help Ohio State win a national championship in 2024. So they bring in Will Howard, six foot five, 250 pounds. He's got an absolute cannon for an arm. He has been a little inconsistent, 
but he's shown an ability to throw with great accuracy all three levels. He has 34 career games under his belt, and I think that's the, the thing that Ohio State fans should be most excited. I mean, just his ability to read defenses and his familiarity um, in reading defenses and being comfortable sitting in that pocket is something that Ohio State quarterback room was desperately lacking entering 2024. I mean, I think it's become, I think, evident the past few years for Will Howard. I mean, oftentimes his best receiving option was coming out of the backfield with guys like Deuce Vaughn. So really, who knows how he would be perceived right now if he had been playing with NFL caliber weapons and an NFL caliber offensive line like he will have at Ohio State next year. I mean, he could be could be potentially a first round pick this year in the draft if he had been playing his whole career. Um, obviously, that's kind of a, a silly hypothetical, but He's definitely an obvious upgrade at the quarterback position from what Ohio State had last year, even with Kyle McCord. They also added Ole Miss running back Quinshawn Judkins. He was first-team All-SEC over the past two seasons. He's had over 3,000 total yards and 34 total touchdowns, five yards carry. So pairing him up with Travion Henderson, easily the best backfield in all of college football. And they also add Alabama center Seth McLaughlin. And he was definitely most famous for those bad snaps really throughout the entire season, but it reached the pinnacle in the Rose Bowl against Michigan. He had a few really bad snaps that really hurt Alabama and their chances of winning that game. So I think that that addition kind of has been mocked by the internet a little bit, rightfully so. I mean, that was, you know, your number one job as the center is to get the ball safely from you to the quarterback, and he struggled doing that. But statistically, he's still been one of the best pass blocking and running run blocking interior lineman in all of college football. He started 25 games over the past two seasons. I think a change of scenery, you know, a new team, new teammates, new coaching staff can really help him put those snapping struggles to rest because he didn't, I mean, it's kind of, I think he got the yips at the end of the day. It's something I, every athlete has probably gotten at some point in their career. I think getting a fresh start for him will help him put that to rest. I don't think that'll be a real issue for him in 2023. I'm sorry, in 2024. And Ohio State might not be done in the portal. Obviously, with Arizona, Washington, and Alabama, the floodgates are seemingly open with so much talent now entering the portal over these next 30 days. Um, they've been going after Caleb Downs, who was the best freshman in all of college football last year at safety for Alabama. His decision should be coming any day. Um, as of this recording, which is Friday, January 19th, he still, I mean, I guess may potentially return to Alabama, but it looks like it's between Ohio State and Georgia for him. Um, and then Caden Proctor, that great tackle that Alabama has. Julian Sane, a five-star quarterback, um, all from Alabama. And uh, Kalipo, that great offensive lineman from Washington. Ohio State maybe has been connected to them. So a lot of talent still on the portal. Ohio State still might be able to add to what's already a ridiculously talented 2024 roster. Um, and then also the coaching staff. It seems like Ryan Day is really making upgrades there. I mean, they fired their special teams coordinator finally after years of really poor special teams play. They brought in Bill O'Brien as a new co-offensive co coordinator next to Brian Hartline to take over play-calling duties. And I think that's a massive win for Ohio State. Bill O'Brien hire has kind of been mocked on the internet as well, and I just simply don't understand that. Because listen, if they were hiring Bill O'Brien as their head coach, I would understand that, but he's not. He's been hired to take Ryan Day's playbook and execute that on Saturdays and take play-calling off of Ryan Day's plate. And I think that was a huge step because believe it or not, it is not common for head coaches to call plays, especially in modern college football. In fact, going back to when the BCS era just began around the turn of the century, only one team has had a head coach that has called plays that has also gone on to win the national championship. 
And that was Jim Trestle with the 2002 Ohio State Buckeyes. And the offense that Jim Trestle was running is definitely a far cry from what we're seeing from the best teams um, in college football today. And Jim Trestle, that team really relied on their defense. So I think it's huge for Ryan Day to get play calling off of his belt. Give it to uh, Bill O'Brien, who's a great play caller, great offensive coordinator. I mean, he held down the fort at Penn State for a couple of years when they were with those NCAA allegations um, between uh, James Franklin and um, Joe Pa. And at Alabama, he was the offensive coordinator for two years. Both years, um, they averaged over 40 points per game. And they only lost four games in those two years. And all four of those games were because of their defense, giving up about like, 35 or more points in all four of those games. So he's a great offensive coordinator, no matter what, you know, Twitter, Twitter feed might be telling you. Um, I think really it's been nothing but wins for Ohio State so far in this offseason. And I'm expecting things from them. I think they are easily up there with Georgia and Texas as the clear national championship favorites for 2024 at this point in the offseason. But of course, you really can't ever mention Ohio State without mentioning their arch rival Michigan. Um, and unfortunately, despite that 2023 national championship, despite finally reaching the summit of college football, things are definitely looking down for that program right now. So I have Michigan trending down heading into 2024. It all starts with Jim Harbaugh, who I think is more than likely gone. I think the fact of the matter, if he gets a head coaching offer in the NFL, he is going to take it. If um, he had gotten the he interviewed for the Vikings job and the Broncos job over the past couple seasons. And if he got either of those offers, he would have already been gone. And I think given what he did with this program this year, he is definitely getting an offer. My guess would be the Chargers with whom he's he's already interviewed. But who knows who else might be interested in him? So. I think Jim Harbaugh is gone, and that alone devastates Michigan's chances to repeat. And I think it's interesting because I think a lot of people aren't really realizing just how much Jim Harbaugh has meant to Michigan and how impressive this rebuild was. And that's for a few reasons. I think, first of all, because of Michigan's play style. I think a lot of disrespect has been thrown at this 2023 Michigan team, saying they weren't a very dominant team. They weren't nearly as good as past national champions. I think that's bogus. I think a lot of it is because they play a pro-style offense because they are line of scrimmage oriented and they all do really lean on that defense, which just, you know, as a viewer, isn't quite as exciting as watching Joe Burrow put up 50 points a game on offense. That doesn't mean Michigan wasn't great. And I have news for you. This Michigan's defense was a generational defense and they would have given that magical 2019 LSU team a run for money, a run for their money. I'm not saying they would have beaten that team, but I think it's a lot closer. It would have been a lot closer than the way people are talking about it. So I think first and foremost, their play style is kind of um, taking away some of the credibility of Michigan. And then also, obviously, the science-stealing scandal, um, which, speaking of which, Michigan still has pending NCAA investigations over their head. And, you know, who, who knows? The NCAA might come down with a verdict before the 2024 season, and that verdict could involve scholarship losses. So that's another dark cloud surrounding this program. But I also think because of what Sharon Moore did in those three games where Jim Harbaugh was suspended at the end of the season, and that a lot of people just aren't really understanding how much Jim Harbaugh meant to this game. And don't get me wrong, what Sharon Moore did for Michigan over those three games is really impressive and very well may have earned him the head coaching role if Harbaugh does move on. But let's not forget, Jim Harbaugh was with the team Sunday through Friday. He had built this team from the ground up. And this was also one of the most experienced teams in the history of college football. So Sharon Moore had a lot of great senior leaders to lean on on game day. So, um, but I think for all those reasons, a lot of people, just the general public 
I don't think truly realizes how great this rebuild has been at Michigan for Jim Harbaugh and how much he means to that program. So when, if he leaves, I think it's going to leave a massive hole in that program that's going to be really hard for them to get over in and of itself. And that's not even mentioning how much talent they're losing. Because I mentioned this was one of the most senior-laden teams in the history of college football. And we knew coming out of the season, they're going to be losing 44th, 5th, and 6th year players. But they're also losing some guys that I think a lot of Michigan fans hoped would stick around and help lead this 2024 team and help keep them relevant and maybe in that national title. Um, But, you know, J.J. McCarthy, he was a junior with um, eligibility remaining. He went for the NFL. Linebacker Junior Colson, he had another couple years of eligibility. He went to the NFL. And then a lot of guys on that great defensive line, Chris Jenkins, Jalen Harrell, uh, Braden McGregor, they all went to the NFL when they could have returned. Um, And right now they're looking at four returning starters on defense, one on offense. That defense should still be great. Still should easily be one of the top five defenses in the Big Ten, probably a top 10 unit nationally. But that's still a far cry from the generational defense that they were in 2023. And obviously having only one starter returning offense, an offense that wasn't necessarily blowing teams out of the water. It's going to be hard for them in 2024. And, you know, Michigan has developed three-star guys than anyone in college football. Um, And that's not a bold statement. That's just a fact. But I don't think that those guys that they're recruiting and developing are really capable of stepping in and being impact players in their first meaningful playtime in their career. Because there's going to be a lot of first-time starters who are seeing their first real competitive minutes in football games that are going to be counted on to be impact players, borderline Big Ten All-Americans. And I'm not just not sure that the quality of guys that they brought in are able to step in and immediately be those kinds of players. Because even though Jim Harbaugh did have a stretch there where he was bringing in top five, top 10 classes, um, each of their last two classes were outside the top 15 nationally. So I don't know if Michigan just has that raw talent on their roster to step in and have a bunch of guys be impact players. So you combine all of that with an absolutely brutal schedule next year that features Texas, USC, Washington, Oregon, and Ohio State. That's five losable games. You know, I think Michigan is looking like a borderline playoff team at best. Um, and compared with that magical season they're just coming off of, I think it, there's no question that Michigan is trending down heading into next season. But back on the positive side of things, one of the teams that is definitely trending up is one of the Big Ten's new additions, the Oregon Ducks. And I think the news that Dan Lanning is, is announced that he was staying despite being connected to that Alabama coaching vacancy, I think that by itself was enough for them to call the offseason a win. Um, the departure of Bo Nix, you know, their veteran quarterback is definitely going to be hard to overcome, but they got one of the best quarterbacks in the in the transfer portal in Dylan Gabriel, who's been a starter at Oklahoma, UCF before that. He has 50 career games under his belt, and that's the kind of experience that really leads to a mastery of an offense, like what we saw with Bo Nix last season. So I think Dylan Gabriel will be able to step into this offense and be very effective. And he's also great with his legs, too. I mean, obviously, Bo Nix was really athletic, and he was a great scrambler. And Dylan Gabriel might not be as fast as Bo Nix, but he's just a better runner of the football. He knows how to make guys miss in space. He has no problem lowering his shoulder and bulldozing guys. And, you know, sometimes he looks like a running back when he's running that football in the open field. So um, I think that just adds a whole new dimension to this Oregon offense. Um, But they're also returning the majority of their offensive line. And they also picked up Matthew Bedford from Indiana. He's a guard who started 39 career games. Um, running back Jordan James, he'll replace Bucky Irvin. He should have no, no problem stepping into that role. 
Tez Johnson is a really talented receiver they have coming back, and he's going to compete with Evan Stewart for that wide receiver one role. Um, Stewart comes over from Texas A&M. He was a former five-star, um, you know, top 100 player. He had 1,200 yards over the last two seasons with the Aggies. So, I mean, that's a really great one-two punch in the past game. So um, they returned just a lot of talent on that offense. I think they have enough on that side of the ball to continue humming. They did lose a lot of the interior of that defensive line, but they still had one of the deepest defensive lines at all of college football last year. And they return defensive end Jordan Bush, who can play anywhere on that defensive line. And he definitely has all Big Ten, maybe even all merit potential. Um, Justin Jacobs, Jer- Jeffrey Bassa, they have linebacker locked down and they brought in a couple transfers to uh, to boost the back end of their defense. So um, they definitely are returning talent and Oregon has been recruiting as well as anyone in the Big Ten. Three of their past four classes were consensus top 10 classes. Um, so there's plenty of talent on this roster. And as it stands today, I think Oregon should be right up there with Ohio State as the preseason Big Ten favorites. You know, I, I, I wouldn't even have a problem if you had Oregon slightly above Ohio State at this junction. And what's really exciting is that the Buckeyes traveled to Eugene to take on the Ducks October 12th. Um, that could very well be a re, uh, you know, preview of the Big Ten championship, or it could be the deciding factor, which one of those two teams are able to make it to the Big Ten title. So that's going to be a great game to watch. Um, but even if Oregon doesn't win the Big Ten, I would be very surprised that this team doesn't make the 12-team playoff in 2024. But on the other side, speaking of rivals and speaking of new additions to the Big Ten, Washington is definitely a program that's trending down. It definitely feels weird having the two teams that just played in the national championship is, is trending down. Um, but I think the fact of the matter is that neither of these teams should really be expected to win 10 or more regular season games next year. And I think Washington is definitely the clearer trending down pick over Michigan. Um, and this one just kind of seems obvious for a lot of reasons. Obviously, losing Michael Penix and virtually all of their skill position players to the NFL hurts. Um, and as it stands today, Washington doesn't have a scholarship quarterback on their roster. Um, Will Rogers was supposed to be the replacement to Michael Penix over from Mississippi State. He transferred in December, but um, when Kalen DeBoer left for Washington, he hit the portal as well, along with a lot of other guys. I mean, Austin Mack, there, um, he was a four-star guy who was maybe supposed to challenge for the job as well. He's gone. At this point, it seems like all the best transfer quarterbacks are off the board. Um except for Saiyan from Alabama, but it doesn't really seem like he's considering Washington. Um, so it looks like, I mean, as it stands today, again, a lot can change. We have spring transfers, and I'm recording this on Friday, January 19th. But as it stands today, they'll be leaning on freshman quarterback um, Demarcus Davis to, to start a quarterback. He's a dual threat, a late riser in his recruiting class um, uh, to earn that fourth star. It's always a dangerous game when you are playing a freshman or redshirt freshman quarterback um, in major college football, especially in a conference, the Big Ten. Uh, they also lost their top 2025, um, or I'm sorry, 2024 commitment. Um, linebacker Ethan Barr, he entered the tra- um, he had transferred from Virginia. Now he's ex- was expected to step into a starting job. Um, he hit the portal as well. They lost two of their best defensive backs. Um, each who had three interceptions last year to the portal. And I mentioned offensive guard Nate Kalipo, who entered the portal, one of their best offensive linemen. So they are really depleted of talent at this point. And there may be more names to come. Like I mentioned, that 30-day window just opened about a week ago for them. So there's a lot more guys that could leave. And don't get me wrong. I love the hire of Jed Fish from Arizona. 
on what he was able to accomplish with them in such short order was really impressive. He took him from one win to 10 wins in three seasons. He has 16 years of experience as an NFL offensive assistant. He was finalist for coach of the year in 2023. He was um, born and raised in New Jersey, went to school in Florida. So he has connections all over the country in order to, for recruiting and to build his staff. And I think his philosophy, um, his coaching philosophy, especially on the offensive side of the ball, really does fit Washington, or at least the, the few pieces of this roster that are, are sticking around. So I definitely don't think that this is going to be a TCU scenario because they were in the national championship a year ago against Georgia, but then they really fell off, missed the bowl game last year. And I mean, their projection as a, as a program over the next you know five years or so, they probably project as a, a mid-level bowl team at best. I don't see Washington falling like that, um, but they do have a rebuild under their uh, um you know, they've rebuilt to undertake. And I think next year is definitely going to be a down year before Jet Fish can get them back into the eight, nine, 10 win conversation before he can make them a top 25 team again. And before he can get them into that national um, or the 12 team playoff conversation. And also you look at their schedule next year. I mean, they play Washington State, Michigan, Iowa, USC, Penn State, Oregon. That's six losable games for them. Wouldn't be shocked at all if they finish next year with a losing record. Um, so this is definitely a rebuild that will take a season or two. I love Jet Fish. I think he'll get them back to where they want to be. But as far as 2024 is concerned, Washington is definitely trending down. And as for a team that's trending neutral, just kind of staying packed, at least in my eyes, I'm going to go with Rutgers. And this is a team that surprised a lot of people last year. And they actually returned the bulk of their roster from a team that went 7-6 and six last year. Uh, beat Miami in their bowl game pretty handedly. And they even gave Michigan and Ohio State a little bit of a shove um, last season. They played both of them into the second half, which isn't something they could have seen really any of the past seasons since they've been um, in the Big Ten. Um, Kyle Manungai, if you don't know who he is, he is a name to know. He led the Big Ten last year in rushing, had almost 1,300 yards and eight touchdowns on five yards of carry. He returned. That was a big, uh, big name they got to return instead of going to the NFL. And Manungai will be running behind an offensive line that hopefully will improve a lot thanks to returning virtually that entire room. Headlined by tackle Holland Pierce, he was a definite NFL draft pick, so he came back. Um, big return for them. And the defense, again, should be a nightmare for opposing offenses. I mean, they were left on the field a lot because of how terrible Rutgers' offense was. So the stats don't tell the entire story, but this was one of the better defenses in the Big Ten last year. They have almost that entire unit returning. Um, they had a lot of surprise announcements from guys that would have been drafted to the NFL but decided to come back. Guys like Aaron Lewis, Muhammad Tori, um, Tyreen Powell, and Wesley Bailey. They have you know, NFL talent and seasoned veterans at all three levels of that defense. And I think that, I mean, they're all, backfield should be great again. Offensive line should get better. Defense should be great again. So why are they trending neutral? Well, the problem with Rutgers, the past couple seasons and really since Greg Schiano took this job back over hasn't been their running game hasn't been their defense it's been their quarterback play which has been amongst the worst in all of college football and I don't really see how they can get much better in 2024 their starter Gavin Wimsett returns and I saw some potential in him earlier this season he has undeniable talent with his legs. He's a former four-star guy who battled injuries his first couple seasons, finally had the job all to himself. Um, but he just didn't really improve. And he, I, if he is their starting quarterback going into next year, I'm definitely concerned. 
And the reason is he's definitely got some arm talent. He's, I mean, early in the season, he always had a few good throws in him, maybe even an NFL caliber throw where you're like, wow, how did he fit that into that window? Um, he had a few good throws every game, but, you know, he's just not consistently accurate. And worst of all is his decision. It's just he never has seemed to really learn the ability to read, de- read defenses and consistently make the right decision. And so if he doesn't take a big step forward, um, they're... Their big addition for the transfer portal was Minnesota quarterback Ethan Kaliak-Manis. He's in the same boat as Wimsett. Um, I saw some potential in Kaliak-Manis early in the season. He is an absolute cannon for an arm. He's the type of guy where you can just flick his wrist and it's going to travel 60 yards in the air. Um, he even, at, you know, back in September, he kind of reminded me a little bit of a young Josh Allen when he was at Wyoming. Definitely in no way saying that Kaliak-Manis is or ever will be Josh Allen. But just that raw athleticism and ability to throw it out of the stadium and from like weird angles, like he can throw the ball down from near his waist if he needs to. Um, and then that kind of remind me just of like the raw talent that Josh Allen had in Wyoming before he really put it all together. But again, if anything, Callie McManus got worse last year. I mean, he went from having a few good throws every game where he by the end of the season, he was just struggling to hit guys that were five or 10 yards past the line of scrimmage. And he has very similar problems as Wimsett with just poor decision-making at the quarterback position. And like, you look at Gavin Wimsett, he completed more than 50% of his passes just four times last year in 13 games. On his career, he's a 46% uh, passer, and he has a touchdown-to-interception ratio of 14 to 17 on his career. You know, he does have, you know, ability with his legs. He's definitely a scrambler that Calic Manis quite isn't. So, I mean, but their other option is Callie Kmanis, who completed 53% of his passes last year and had a 14 to 9 touchdown to interception ratio and only averaged around six yards in attempts throwing the ball. So, and he also was doing this with a really talented group of pass catchers at Minnesota, one that I don't think Rutgers is really able to replicate for him. So it's not like the situation is getting better for Callie Kmanis. It just really seems like Rutgers has a couple objectively bad quarterbacks. And Listen, Rutgers roster is good enough to stick around in 2024 and reach another bowl, reach another bowl game. But in order to top that seven win total um, and get within the earshot of the top 25, even um, and maybe even upset a ranked team, they need to have drastically better quarterback play. And I just don't see that coming from Gavin Wimsett or Ethan Kalik Manis. Now that's what the spring is for. Maybe the outlook for them will be different once we get to see these guys in action uh, during the spring game in April. But until then, I see no reason to think that Rutgers can take another step and become maybe an eight-win team and start to sniff that top five. Um, but back to the side of, of good news, another team that I think is definitely trending up heading into 2024 is Nebraska. And a lot of it has to do with my faith in Matt Rule. I think a lot of people who aren't close to Nebraska are kind of being like, after what he did with the Panthers and after a disappointing first year in Nebraska, I think people are kind of quick to write him off. But you have to remember that his previous rebuilds at Temple and at Baylor were not done overnight by any means. At Temple, he won two games his first year. Then they went to six wins, and then he had back-to-back 10-win seasons. At Baylor, he had one win his first season. Then he went to seven wins, and then he had that great 11-win season uh, where they won the New Year's Six Bowl game. And that is the season that really got him the Carolina Panthers job. And... Let's not also forget that this is a Nebraska team that needed drastic improvement at essentially every position group last year. 
And so this really was a massive undertaking for Matt Rule. It wasn't like he was adopting a program like Alabama. He was adopting a team that has not gone to a bowl game in nearly 10 years. And yet he still won, he still won five games. And he was still a few plays away from hitting seven or eight wins, actually being a real player in the Big Ten West and maybe even winning that division. He wasn't that far off. And the best thing about what he did at Nebraska last year was essentially every position group got a lot better, especially that defense. He instituted a 3-3-5. I thought they were going to have a really long year on the defensive side of the ball because learning a whole new defensive scheme, let alone a 3-3-5, can be really difficult, especially for college players. But, I mean, they took it. Um, I mean, they learned it like the back of their hand. I mean, they were easily, they were in, their defense was in the top half of the Big Ten, and their defense was the only reason they were in half of their games last year. Um, but the problem with Nebraska is that, you know, the one position group that didn't see any improvement at all last year was the most important one, and that was quarterback. They brought in Jeff Sims, seasoned veteran from Georgia Tech who had experience running the uh, option. So it seemed like a logical plug and play, and that was evident early on that he was not the answer. And then it was just kind of, uh, you know, who's healthy and willing to play between Sims and Heinrich Harburg and Chubba Purdy, Brock Purdy's younger brother. And they just never got a, even one good game of quarterback play last year. But now they bring in Dylan Rayola, the number one quarterback in his class, flipped him from Georgia. And it's always a little risky when you have to go play a true freshman quarterback, like I said before, especially in a conference like the Big Ten where there's so many great defenses. Um, but it is looking like you know, Dylan Rayola will be the day one starter for Nebraska. I'd be shocked if he wasn't, wasn't because his main competition is Heinrich Harburg. He completed 51, I mean, sorry, 49% of his passes last year with a one-to-one touchdown to interception ratio. So I got to expect Dylan Rayola is going to be better than that. So the bar is incredibly low for him. But the thing with him, he's going to be an 18-year-old starting quarterback in the best conference in college football. It's going to be an uphill battle for him, and he's definitely going to go through his growing pains. I think at the very least, Dylan Rayola will give Nebraska some sense of stability at the quarterback position which is he did not have anything close to that last year. I think they'll have a quarterback that, you know, can at least be relied on to hit a guy on a simple out route and he's in, in soft main coverage and he'll hit an accurate ball near the sideline. You know, I think that the bar is pretty low for him. I think he will be able to clear that bar. Um, but it's also going to, what will help Dylan Rayola out a little bit is that Nebraska is returning virtually everyone on that offensive line and they return a guard um, who has started 21 games over the past two seasons at Baylor in Florida. At running back Dante Dowdle uh, from Oregon, he was a 2022 top 150 recruit. So um, there's talent around him. I think this offense as a whole should get a lot better next year with Dylan Rayola at the reins, despite him being a true freshman. Um, receiving options you know, do seem thin, but again, the bar is so low for this Nebraska offense to get better. I don't think they'll have much trouble doing that. And I think the offense taking any sort of steps forward will be huge for them to make them and potentially win a bowl game. Considering how good the defense was last year, how much they return on that side of the ball, they should again have a defense that's at least in the top half of the Big Ten. So um, I think Nebraska could have a pretty good roster last year. next year. You also have to consider the talent that's been coming into Nebraska as well. Um, Scott Frost was not recruiting very well when he was at Nebraska classes consistently outside the top 30, even top 50 sometimes. And Matt Rule has really stepped it up. He had a late push in that 23 class, got them to 25th overall. 
Um, and their their last class in 2024 um, nearly cracks the top 15. So there's more talent coming into this roster. And the schedule is also really favorable for Nebraska next year. They start off with UTEP, Colorado, Northwestern, Illinois, Purdue, Rutgers, Indiana. I mean, that's seven winnable games. I mean, based off of what I just reeled off, it would definitely be, it might be a stretch, but I don't think anyone would be shocked if Nebraska can win all the seven of those games and start off 7-0. and um, and I think at the very least, a six in one start is on the table. And I think if Nebraska can be bowl eligible entering November, that'd be a huge win. I think it would allow them to potentially pull off some late season upsets, given the fact that their main goal will have already been accomplished. So Nebraska under Matt Rule in his second season, definitely trend. Um, but a team that's trending down is Maryland. And I'm really disappointed with how their 2023 season went because at this time last year, I was hyping up Maryland, and they were a program that was definitely on the rise. They had some really good classes, at least by their standard, coming in. I mean, their last three classes um, before the 2024 class were all top 30 in the country and top six in the Big Ten. And they had gotten a lot of transfers, um, especially along the offensive line, a line that really desperately needed a makeover. And they returned the ha- uh, had the return of quarterback uh, Talia Tungaviola, They had a lot of exciting young weapons on defense. And so I thought they were a sneaky pick not to win the East by any means, but to be competitive in that division, to potentially hit 10 wins, potentially give Ohio State, Penn State, Michigan uh, a run for their money, maybe upset one of those, be a ranked team, and make a big-time bowl game. I thought all of that was on the table for Maryland. And they just never really realized their potential last year. Um, I think it was their best opportunity they've had since they've been in the Big Ten to be a top 25 team. And they kind of fell flat in their face when it mattered most. They ended up going seven and five. They did hit eight wins, which was a nice little win for them, but they beat up on a pitiful Auburn team in their bowl game. Um, and it just kind of seems like, at least from my vantage point, Maryland fans, maybe I'm off my rocker here. It feels like the 2023 season was largely kind of let down. And now Talia is gone. He's off to the NFL. And key playmakers on offense like Corey Deitches, who was... I think one of the most underrated tight ends in college football last year um, and receivers, Tyrese Chambers and Ja'Shawn Jones, they're all gone. Their star linebacker, um, Ja'Shawn Barham, he transfers to Michigan. He was kind of, I think, supposed to be the centerfold of that defense next year. Um, and I'm concerned for the trajectory of this team, um, mainly because this is a Maryland team that's relied so heavily on Talia being special for the past couple of seasons. Listen, Maryland's going to have some really great weapons. I mean, they've been producing great receiving options consistently under Mike Loxley. Roman Hemby returns at running back. He's one of the more underrated running backs in the conference. Um, But the offensive line has been an issue for years, and it's going to have to replace their entire right side. They did bring in eight prospects in the 2024 class, but I think it's really hard to expect true freshman offensive linemen to step be competitive and incompetent in a starting role conference like the Big Ten. They did pick up two transfer additions on that offensive line, but both of them seem more so like band-aids than foundational pieces that they can really build around and have a competent offensive line. Um, So, I mean, I think this offensive line, which has been their Achilles heel under Mike Loxley, again, just does not have a good outlook. And then you look at the quarterback position, they're going to have a battle between Billy Edwards and MJ Morris. Um, Billy Edwards has been Talia's backup the past couple of seasons. He's had a few starts under his career, um, under his belt. 
And MJ Morris started for NC State last year, and he's going to transfer over. So that should be a really entertaining battle. But both of them are much more reliant on their legs um, and are very far from being proven passers. They can both improvise really well, escape the pocket, and that should be able to allow them to have a few more, you know, like easy throws for them. But the, neither of them are nearly the downfield threat throwing the ball that Talia had been for his entire career. So I look at this Maryland team. I think the two most important factors to their success are the offensive line and the quarterback position. And both of them appear to be going in the wrong direction, at least in the immediate future. So for that reason, I have them trending down. Um, another team that's trending neutral, just kind of staying packed, is USC. So obviously they have to re uh, replace their star Caleb Williams at quarterback, but they did get some nice news with their turn of guys like Ed Rusher, um, Jamil Muhammad, um, their star safety, a great offensive lineman as well. So um, they definitely have some great pieces coming back. And USC also has, in my opinion, the most talented bunch of freshman receivers in the entire country, guys like Zachariah Branch. Um, I think that will definitely be able to bolster a pass attack that honestly might need to do a little bit more than what Caleb Williams has been doing, um, thanks to the loss of running back Marshawn Lloyd. Uh, Miller Moss, he had a great outing in his bowl game through six touchdowns. He looks like the early favorite to win that job, and I think that he'll be able to run this offense very well, but he's also not nearly the running threat that Caleb Williams is. He's just not um, that athletic with his legs, so I think for that reason, he might have to shoulder a little bit more in that passing game. But I think if you look at Lincoln Riley's stint as USC head coach overall, so far it has been just a little underwhelming. Um, but despite that, he's still, he's not going to forget how to put together an elite offense. USC will be able to put up points um, even against the stronger defenses that he'll be playing in the Big Ten as opposed to what he's been used to in the Pac-12. And what's great for uh, USC is their defense should be a lot better. That isn't saying a whole lot considering that USC has consistently had one of the worst defenses in college football the past couple seasons. But I love the new hire of defensive co uh, coordinator Deanna Lynn from UCLA. He has lots of NFL experience, predominantly as a secondary coach. Uh, he stepped in and immediately made UCLA one of the better defenses in the country. In 2022, UCLA was outside the top 90 in scoring and total defense. And Lynn comes in, immediately made them a top 15 unit across the board in essentially every statistical category. So you got to figure USC's offense should still be potent. Their defense is going to take a big step forward. So why are they only trending neutral? Well, my big problem with USC and, and Lincoln Riley is really just his philosophy. I think his high-flying air raid type offense makes it really hard to you know sit on a lead and prevent teams from coming back. Makes them hard to control the line of scrimmage run some, bleed some clock when they need to, and run the ball consistently, and most important, run the ball when the other team knows that you're about to run the ball. And I think all of those things are integral to success in the Big Ten, and I just don't know if a Lincoln-Riley offense um, and a Lincoln-Riley team are able to do those things. And I love the hire of DeAnton Lynn, but like I said, he's more of a secondary coach, and he's definitely going to help this defense improve, but I don't know if he's able to really beef up um, the defensive front of USC, a defensive front that's been pushed around consistently over the past few years. I mean, I remember the opener last year against San Jose State. USC was getting blown off the line of scrimmage. So, I mean, they have a lot of flawed fundamentals as well. Poor tackling, poor angles, busted coverages. 
So he can fix a lot of that. I don't know if he can fix enough for USC to be a legitimate Big Ten championship contender next year. So um, I think they're trending neutral because I think when you think of USC under Lincoln Riley, I think you think of them as a low-end top 25 team. Someone over the past few years, any given week, you would expect to see USC in the rankings, but not usually as a consensus top 10 team, not as a really national championship contender. I think they've been just kind of a a low-end top 25 team, and that's how I see them being in 2024. Um, Until Lincoln Riley can prove that he can adapt his play style to play big boy football and win big-time games Big Ten, I'm going to project them to probably be around an eight-win team next year. And um, there just hasn't been enough movement on that roster and that coaching staff for me to really think that USC is ready to up their game and really elevate their ceiling from what it was in the Pac-12. So that's why I have USC trending neutral right now. And the last couple of teams I want to talk about, uh, first trending up is Indiana. So you might want to take a screenshot of this right now because I don't know how many times in the future, we can say this about the Indiana football program. But this all starts with the hire of James Madison coach, Bert Signetti. I absolutely love him. I love the way he's talked and, and handled everything so far. He brings a fire to this program that I think Tom Allen was really missing. Because everyone loved Tom Allen so much. From the administration, to the players, to the assistant coaches, to the parents of recruits and players. And I think that's maybe the reason why he stuck around a little bit longer than he should have. Uh, and the thing with Bert Signetti, which I really love, he's, he doesn't care about being liked. He cares about winning. And that's all he's done in his career. It hasn't been at the big stage like the Big Ten. But he has a 77% winning percentage um, as a head coach in his college football career. He won 53 games in six seasons at IUP, which is in Division Two. He had one of the t- best two-year stretches in the history of Elon football after that and then he won 53 games in five seasons at james madison culminated obviously with this past magical season which is the big reason why he got that indiana job and he was born in pennsylvania he played quarterback at west virginia so he definitely has familiarity with the big 10 territory and he has some coaching experience at alabama under nick saban so i think he's got some connections uh, throughout the country so i think from an experience standpoint to winning standpoint to a recruiting standpoint he checks off every box that you could have hoped for in an indiana hire because reminder this is indiana football this is not ohio state it's not michigan it's not penn state and honestly it's not even purdue he this isn't a program that can attract some big name head coaches so i think the fact that they got bert signetti on the heels of that magical season at uh, jmu i think it was an absolute slam dunk He's also done wonders in the transfer portal so far. Indiana has a top 10 uh, transfer class, and they've also quietly assembled what I think is one of the best wide receiver rooms, in maybe the entire country. Um, they bring in Elijah Surratt, who had 1,200 yards for James Madison last year. The year before that, he was an FCS, all, um, all freshman, all American. And then they bring in Miles Cross, who's had 1,200 yards over the past couple seasons at Ohio University. And then Miles Price and Keyshawn Williams, each three-year starters at their respective schools. And then they return Donovan McCauley. He's a former four-star recruit, converted quarterback. He had 645 yards and six touchdowns for Indiana last year. And EJ Williams, who transferred from Clemson last year, he's a former four-star. He had 23 catches in his first year with Indiana. So they got six reliable, experienced guys, and they have a a reliable two-deep at the X, Y, and Z receiver positions. 
So I think that's going to really help them at least be able to put up some points and compete with teams in the Big Ten. And they do lose Brendan Swarsby, who kind of really took the stranglehold of that quarterback job last year at the end of the season and really made off Indiana's offense respectable. He really lit up the scoreboard, almost beat Penn State in that game at Happy Valley. Um, but they do retain Taven Jackson. He was a four-star quarterback transfer from Tennessee last year. And he will be competing with Ohio quarterback Curtis Rorke. And so he has, um, Curtis Rorke does, uh, he has 32 starts over the past three seasons for Ohio University. He was the MAC player of the year in 2022. He led them to back-to-back 10-win seasons. And he has 50 touchdowns to 16 interceptions on his career and has completed 66% of his passes. So I don't think, you know, he's certainly not going to be lighting up any scoreboards, but I think in the case that Taven Jackson doesn't start to develop and, you know, doesn't become what Indiana fans are hoping he becomes, I think Curtis Rookie offers a safe floor at the quarterback position for Indiana. They at least have a guy who has started games before, knows how to read a defense, and has a pretty accurate arm. And I think that's a, I mean, it's a good start for Indiana. Um, like I mentioned, they have a top 10 transfer class in the entire country. They brought in some pieces to help with losses on the offensive line and on defense. Listen, this is still a huge rebuild. I mean, Indiana, building a winning program in Indiana is probably the hardest program to win at out of any out of the power conferences. But I like what Bert Signetti has done to start. And also, you look at their schedule next year, it does seem pretty manageable. Ohio State and Michigan are on their schedule, but those are likely the only two preseason top 25 teams that they'll have to play. So the roster still has to come together a bit. I'm sure we'll see some more movement in and out of the program in the spring. But this is as optimistic as I felt about Indiana um, in a really long time, maybe ever. And I think that they have a good chance to be next year's Rutgers, maybe sneak into a bowl game and finish with a winning record. It wouldn't shock me. So... For the first time in a long time, I have Indiana trending. And that's going to do it for this trends report. I appreciate you hanging in there. And we're going to do this a lot more throughout the season. Probably coming out of the spring will be a really good time to kind of reevaluate where teams are going, if they're kind of trending up or trending down again. And that will take us into our next segment. So Jim Harbaugh is a coach that obviously likes to talk a lot. If you don't like him, at the very least, he's an entertaining guy to listen to. But something he said after the Rose Bowl against Alabama, got kind of stuck with me and got me thinking a little bit. It's when he called J.J. McCarthy the greatest quarterback in Michigan history. That's definitely a statement I don't have any issue with. Definitely raised some eyebrows, I think, considering Tom Brady went to Michigan. But you have to realize we're talking about college quarterbacks here, and there's a reason Tom Brady was drafted so late. But that got me thinking, where does J.J. McCarthy rank in terms of all-time Big Ten quarterbacks? Because the Big Ten, I think, was definitely a little bit late to the evolution of the modern college offense. They really stuck to their guns with kind of the three year, three yards in a cloud of dust, dust mentality for longer than other conferences. And there's a reason why, you know, you, you see any list of the greatest college quarterbacks of all time. You're not going to see many, if any at all, Big Ten quarterbacks listed. And so I think some of the greatest quarterbacks in the history of the conference have really come from the past 20 years or so. So it's got me thinking... Where does J.J. McCarthy rank as far as all-time Big Ten quarterbacks? And that led me to want to rank the top 10 all-time Big Ten quarterbacks. So a couple things I want to clarify before we dive into this. I only consider players that played in the Big Ten. 
So, you know, Tom, Tommy Frazier, obviously one of the all-time great college quarterbacks for Nebraska. But when he was at Nebraska, they were in the Big 12, not the Big 10. So did not consider him. And the same goes for Washington, USC, UCLA, and Oregon did not consider any of their quarterbacks because none of them have played in the Big 10. Another thing I want to clarify is that this is not the quarter. I'm not ranking quarterbacks based off their accolades, their, their records, their statistics. I'm going off of, you know, just best quarterbacks. If I'm building a college team that I want to win in the year 2024, what quarterbacks am I going to take on my team to build a winning team? And that brings me into the last point I want to clarify is that evaluating a college quarterback is much different than evaluating an NFL quarterback. Because, you know, I think if we're draft, if we're evaluating these off of quarterbacks we want to build an NFL team with, I think CJ Stroud or Drew Brees or Tom Brady easily would be you know, your top three. Um, but at the college level, the requirements are a little bit different. You don't have to be able to you know, dissect an entire defense and get through four reads in three seconds at the college level. You don't have to consistently throw the ball 40 yards downfield into a window that is the size of a nickel. You don't have to do that at the college level. Guys are open in the college level. Your biggest prerogative as a college quarterback is to be able to identify, identify those guys and just hit them. You don't, it helps to be crazy accurate and have a cannon for an arm, but it's not mandatory to have that in order to be a great college quarterback. And also at the college level, I really, really want my quarterbacks to be mobile and be really athletic and be a real weapon in the open field with his legs. Because I think a mobile quarterback is so much easier to exploit at the college level than it is at the NFL. If you have a quarterback who runs 4-4 speed in, the, in, in college, he's automatically one of, if not the fastest players on the entire field. And he's one broken tackle away from having a 70-yard touchdown run. And in the NFL, you're, you have 4-4 speed, you're, you're almost average. And the hits in the NFL are also entirely different. Like a quarterback in the, at the college level can lower his shoulder. He can take on a few hits and he can carry a pile sometimes. In the NFL, you get hit once or twice too many times you could be knocked out of the game. You could miss uh, the season. You could even see your career end it. So you really can't afford to have a quarterback run off that much. It's much, you need a quarterback in the NFL who's able to sit in the pocket, read defenses, dissect, and deliver an accurate ball down the field. You need that. There's really no question about it. In the college level, you don't. I think if, if you have a quarterback that's able to accurately throw the ball within 25 yards, make one read, and if that read's not there, take off and make something happen with his legs, I mean, you can, you can still win a national championship that way. So that's something to keep in mind is that we're building a college team here. At the college level, I prefer my quarterbacks to be able to move with their legs and be a real threat running the ball. So as we get into this, I do, there are a few names that didn't make the list that I feel like I have to mention just so people know that I did consider them. It wasn't like um, just ignorance on my side because they're, I feel like there is a really solid top five that I'm really confident about that you will see as we get into these rankings. But then after that, there's like six through probably 20 that's really tight and that you could really make an argument to be ordered any sort of way. Um, Bob Greasy at Purdue, he was maybe the hardest quarterback to, to leave off this list. I also feel like what he did in the NFL was kind of carrying my perception of what he was able to do in the, uh, at the college level. He had about a one-to-one touchdown to interception ratio, and he completed I think, around 55% of his passes. So 
Um, he's he's off this list. Michigan uh, considered Tom Brady and Chad Henney, but again, like I said with Tom Brady, there was a reason he was drafted so late. Chad Henney, the more I thought about him, the more he just kind of reminded me of a, a Walmart Ryan Mallet almost. That might be disrespectful to to Chad Henney to call him a Walmart Ryan Mallet. You know, he was an incredibly mobile guy. He had a really long windup. He was accurate, but I don't think he was special enough to include in this top 10. Um, Talia Tungaviola, I actually did briefly consider him, but I think that was mainly because he's now the Big Ten's all-time passing leader. Um, he's that, I mean, he has a, he has a good amount of flaws. Uh, I think he, at the end of the day, he's just too tiny for him to be a quarterback that I am um, drafting on my team. Indiana, um, Ben Chappell, not sure if you remember him. He was quarterback around 2009, 2010. He was a re- I mean, he was a prototypical quarterback. He had a really beautiful arm, did not make any mistakes. But again, I'm really looking for my, a quarterback who can move ideally, and he just wasn't that. Uh, Michigan State had a run of great quarterbacks. Connor Cook, Kirk Cousins, Drew Stanton all in a row for that program. Big reason why they reached new levels of success under Mark D'Antonio. Um, and I considered each of them for the top 10, um, but they just didn't quite make it. And then Ohio State, I mean, they have a handful of quarterbacks in the top 10, um, and, but even so, they have a lot of talented quarterbacks that I left off this list entirely, and it was hard. I mean, every single one of these guys, JT Barrett, Braxton Miller, Terrell Pryor, Cardell Jones, Dwayne Haskins, I gave all five of them serious consideration to get into the top 10. And they just didn't make it for a variety of reasons. Although um, part of it was I didn't want maybe eight Ohio State quarterbacks taking up, to, uh, taking up um, eight spots in the top 10 for Ohio State quarterbacks. So maybe another fun thing another day would be ranking the Ohio State quarterbacks. Um, and then Jack Trudeau, name probably not a lot of the listeners here uh, would recognize. He was way back in the day, but he was you know greatest quarterback in Illinois history. I considered that, but and probably... A little ageist with my rankings here. Um, a lot of guys older. I feel like the best quarterbacks in the Big Ten have come from the past 25, 30 years. And I feel like you can pluck a guy out from World War II and you know that era of college football. I don't think they would be able to you know, operate the kind of offenses that we're running today. So I've definitely leaned more towards the more recent quarterbacks because I simply think they're better. And also because I have had an opportunity to watch these guys live, and I feel like I have a much better appreciation for them. I can't go back and pull up Shikarli's statistics. I mean, Shikarli's highlights from 1919. So um, it's kind of hard to to compare him to these quarterbacks that I have seen live. So anyway, enough introduction. Let's get right into it. My number 10 all-time Big Ten quarterback. I'm going to go with Kerry Collins from Penn State. He was their quarterback from 1991 to 1994. In my opinion, the best quarterback in Penn State history and one of the best pure passes of the football in the history of the conference. He helped Penn State in their first years as a member of the Big Ten Conference in the early 90s. He led them to an undefeated season in 1994. They were unfortunately denied the championship in favor of Nebraska, but he put together a really successful stretch for Penn State there. In that 1994 season, he had a 173 quarterback rating, which remains to be um, fourth best in Big Ten history. He completed 67% of his passes at over 10 yards in attempt, 2,700 passing yards, and a 3-to-1 touchdown-to-interception ratio. And he broke records for total offense, completions, passing yardage, passing efficiency, completion percentage. Uh, he really did it all for Penn State, and he was the focal point of what was a really electric offense. He finished his career with 5,300 passing yards, a 21-5 record. He was a true gunslinger. 
like I said, the focal point of a really dynamic and exciting offense for Penn State back in the 90s. He ended up being a top five pick in the NFL, had an 18-year career in the NFL, threw for over 40,000 yards and 200 touchdowns. And he's just an accurate guy. I think he's a great ball distributor. And I think he's someone you can really just throw the playbook at and he'd be able to handle it. Kerry Collins isn't higher on this list, first of all, because he was never really a threat with his legs. His arm is just as, as talented as any. Um, but his decision-making is also a little bit questionable. That's something that happened in his college career and also followed him into the NFL. You know, despite throwing for over 200 touchdowns, he had about a one-to-one touchdown-to-interception ratio in the NFL. So that's why he is not a little bit higher. Number nine, going with Antoine Randall L. out of Indiana. He was there from 1998 to 2000. And I think Randall L. was easily the toughest quarterback to rank out of any on this list. Partially because he played at a really dark period for Indiana football, which is saying a lot for the Indiana football program. But he, Indiana was in a 13-year stretch where they had four different head coaches. They had more seasons with two or fewer wins than bowl appearances. Um, and Randall L., a lot because of that, didn't win very much. He had a 14-30 record in four years as, as a starter at Indiana. But it felt wrong leaving him off the list because he remains to this I think one of the most exciting players to watch in college football history. And he was certainly, I think, the most exciting player to watch in all of football at the time. He kept IU competitive in a lot of games, um, a lot in a lot of games that Indiana had no business really being in. And he, at the very least, kind of gave Indiana hopes of reaching the postseason. Um, he was the only player in college football history to have over 7,000 passing yards and 3,500 rushing yards. He counted for 86 total touchdowns in his career. And he wasn't a great thrower of the football. Like, his accuracy wasn't dependable. He completed only 50% of his passes on his career. He had only two fewer interceptions than touchdowns. But I think that just says how, illustrates how great Antoine Randall L was because despite his throwing of the football, it almost didn't matter. He was that electric of a runner. And I think he remains as electric of a runner as any at the position in the history of football because he had that breakaway speed and he could change directions on a dime, juke you out of your shoes. But he also had no problem running you over if that was, if that was what he had to do. And I don't think it's a bold statement to say that no player in college football at the time meant more to his team than Antoine Randall L meant to Indiana. So. And another reason why I felt like I had to include him on this list, because, you know, if we're draft, if, you know, you put him into modern college football today, I think there's coaches that could do some really special things with him. You know, who knows where Antoine Randall would be and how he would be perceived if he was at a program who could help him develop as a passer, who could give him consistent um, time behind an offensive line, could have a couple NFL caliber weapons at his disposal. It's really hard to predict, which is also why he's lower on this list, like, it's hard for me to say, oh, yeah, if you plug him into Ohio State, he's going to have 5,000 total yards and win the Heisman. We can't say that for sure. But yeah, if you put him in Ryan Day's offense, I'd be surprised if a talent Antoine Rendell couldn't at least get invited to New York for the Heisman ceremony. So it really felt wrong not including him on this list. But, you know, playing that hypothetical game of, oh, what if Antoine Randall was in a different program and his, his you know, struggles throwing the football are why he's only at number nine. Number eight, I'm going to go with the famous last cover of the NCAA football game, Denard Robinson. And I feel like 
people have quickly forgotten how exciting and dominant Denard Robinson really was. He helped Michigan stay afloat between Lloyd Carr and Jim Harbaugh because he was a Rich Rod recruit. He spent one season with Rich Rod and then Brady Hook Hook took over and had a roster that was, you know, Rich Rodriguez took three years to disassemble Michigan's roster to build this spread option attack that he was running at West Virginia. And it seemed like he finally had the roster that he wanted that was capable of winning and playing the football kind of football he wanted. And then he got fired. And then Brady Hoke came in, has this spread type roster and tries to institute a pro style offense with Denard Robinson as his quarterback. And really, Denard Robinson was the only highlight, I think, on the offensive side of the ball uh, for that entire stretch. From 2010 to 2012, Denard Robinson averaged 112 rushing yards a game. He averaged more than a touchdown per game, over six and a half yards a carry. And remember, this is in college, too. So that accounts for the sacks he took that goes off of his uh, rushing statistics. Even so, he had those ridiculous rushing numbers over three seasons. Um, I mean, I think his speed and his vision were just simply unmatched. I mean, you knew as soon as he hit a hole, he could hit a different level of acceleration. And there were times where he would hit that hole and kind of hit that speed at like the 50-yard line. And you could look away from your TV knowing it was going to be a touchdown because he was just that electric in the open field. And what was also special about him was, um, you know, when he was scrambling around in the pocket, he knew to keep his eyes downfield. He had no problem, you know, taking shots downfield. If he saw a guy one-on-one, he would go take that, um, he would go take that shot. And he knew kind of how to keep his eyes downfield and then hit that hole and make one guy miss. And all of a sudden it's Denard Robinson in the open field. It's game over. And I think, I mean, if you're into watching football highlights, Denard Robinson and Antoine Randall both have some of the most underrated and thrilling football highlights you can watch in the entire sport. Um, you know, Denard Robinson, he obviously did have his fair share of struggles as a passer. He wasn't a prolific passer. That's why he had to switch to running back when he went to the NFL, um, especially his senior year. Remember, he was dealing with a hand injury that really didn't allow him to throw the football much. So it kind of relegated him to the wildcat role and Devin Gardner kind of took over that quarterback position. But even so, he completed pretty respectable 57% of his passes on his career. He threw for almost 6,500 yards. Um, and he was definitely a capable passer at the college level. And he made defenses respect his ability to, to, to throw the ball downfield. Because listen, I mean, Denard Robinson might not, he wouldn't have been able to put up the stats he did if defenses were putting eight guys in the box and being like, yeah, throw the ball over us. He was a good enough a passer where defenses weren't able to do that. And that's why I have Denard Robinson over Antoine Randall in these rankings. And he gets my eighth spot. Number seven is going to be a quarterback that I'm not sure um, too many of uh, the viewers here will recognize, Chuck Long out of Iowa. He was their quarterback from 1981 to 1985. And it might look funny having an Iowa quarterback in the all-time top 10 for the Big Ten, but Iowa is a little bit more of a storied program than many people realize. They're definitely thought of today as, you know, under Kirk Ferentz with their elite defense and inept offense, but... Iowa was actually one of the programs that helped get the Big Ten out of that three yards in a cloud of dust mentality that really dominated the entire conference in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, thanks to guys like Woody Hayes and Bo Schembechler. I mean, the Big Ten for a long time was definitely not the most entertaining conference to watch in all of college football. 
Um, and then came along Chuck Long, along with guys like Arch, Arch Leister, too, at Ohio State. But um, that really helped kind of evolve Big Ted offenses. But Chuck Long was, was the quarterback at the time. I think he was the best quarterback in the Big Ten for three straight seasons. And it wasn't like, you know, oh, he was um, maybe the best quarterback. Like, he was the definitive best quarterback for three straight seasons in the Big Ten. And like I said, big reason why Big Ten offenses started to evolve. And he put up some gaudy numbers, too, even by today's standards. Chuck Long stands at six foot four. He had a cannon for an arm, and he could move around pretty well. So um, as far as the measurables go, he kind of checks off every box that I would want out of a modern college quarterback. And from 1983 to 1985, Chuck Long went 27-9. and He completed 65% of his passes, averaged almost 250 passing yards per game, put 56 touchdowns, 14 rushing touchdowns to 36 interceptions. Obviously, that 36 interception number is pretty big. But again, this was the early 80s. I think if you put him in an offense today, I think Chuck Long could put up some ridiculous numbers. And he actually finished seventh in the Heisman voting in 1984 and was expected to go pro. But he came back for another season, put together a magical season, one of the best teams in Iowa history, finished second in the Heisman voting in 1985. And he finished second to Bo Jackson. So I think if you're going to... Um, come in second in an award like the Heisman, you'd want to come in second to someone like Bo Jackson. I think that's pretty forgivable. Um, Iowa went 10-2, and two, won the Big Ten, lost to UCLA in the Rose Bowl in a classic. Again, one of the best teams in Iowa history, and a lot of it had to do with Chuck Long. You know, like I mentioned with those interceptions, he did have a lot of turnovers. He did take a lot of sacks. So, um, and also the fact that, you know, I never got to watch him live, believe it or not. I was not alive in 1985. Um, so I think, and like I said, I definitely have a little bit of recency bias for guys that I have seen play live. So that's why he's only at seven. I think an argument could definitely be made that he's a top five quarterback. Um, but also just playing that hypothetical game of, you know, what if Chuck Long was in a modern offense? He, I think he could definitely put up big numbers, but playing that hypothetical game is a little bit dangerous. So I think that's why I have Chuck Long down at number seven. And number six, this one might catch some strays and might raise some eyebrows. I have Russell Wilson, who played at Wisconsin during the 2011 season after a few years at NC State. And I think the main reason why this might catch some strays is because of Russell Wilson's um, play in the NFL the past few seasons. I think recency bias definitely plays into it, and his downward trajectory of his career over the past three seasons definitely um, hasn't been pretty to watch. But, you know, don't let the past few seasons in the NFL fool you. Russell Wilson was one of the greatest quarterbacks in the entire country um, in 2011. And he led a really magical 2011 Wisconsin team. He finished ninth in the Heisman voting that season. I think he easily could have been higher. One, if he played in an offense that was a little bit more aggressive, because, you know, it's Wisconsin pro-style offense. Yeah. Um, but also, he was playing in an era of really great college quarterbacks. I mean, Andrew Luck, RG3, Case Keenum, Kellen Moore, Matt Barkley, Braxton Miller all played in 2011. These are all really great college quarterbacks. So um, despite that, he still was able to finish ninth in the Heisman voting. He set a record at the time in passer rating with 191. He completed 73% of his passes for almost 3,200 yards, 39 total touchdowns, and only four interceptions, which is absolutely bonkers. He only threw 14 interceptions over a 14-game season. And he averaged over 10 yards in attempts 
yards and attempts, yards per attempt is a statistic that I love for quarterbacks. So you will definitely kind of see me mention that more throughout here. But there really was nothing that Russell Wilson could not do as a college quarterback. He had pinpoint accuracy on every level of the defense. And he had that, still had that beautiful touch on deep throws that you remember from his time in Seattle. Um, but he could also, you know, he could laser one in and beat, um, you know, beat a safety uh, from hitting a receiver and get that, get that ball in a tight window really quickly. Um, and he was also, he was a real mobile threat. He's really slowed down with age, but don't forget, he had really good speed. He was tough to tackle. He was slippery in that pocket. And once he escaped to the pocket, I mean, he could throw just as well on the run as he could from inside the pocket. And he also was willing and able to scramble upfield. Um, he was a great decision maker and that applied to the option game too. I mean, Wisconsin ran a lot of read options in that team and he ran really effectively. And so, like I said, there really isn't anything that Russell Wilson couldn't do at the college level. I think that would allow him to run any offense you want in today's game. And, um, you know, as I'm speaking now, almost talking myself into he should be hired because he was a really great quarterback. But I think number six is really appropriate for him. He elevated Wisconsin to a whole new level when he got there in 2011 because under Brett Bielema, Wisconsin had been a good, not great program consistently in the top 25, but not really a top 10 program. In 2011, they 11 and 2, won the Big Ten and the Rose Bowl in a classic game against that undefeated TCU team with Andy Dalton. And he was actually two plays away from potentially competing for a national championship. Um, the first loss was on the road at Michigan State, a team that was led by Kirk Cousins. It was going to go to overtime, and Michigan State ran a Hail Mary in the last play of regulation from like the 45-yard line, I want to say. Wisconsin batted down, fell right into uh, the receiver Nichols' hands. He got it over the goal line by a couple inches. Um, that is just an iconic play. And so that obviously was their first loss. And then the week after that, they visited Ohio State in Columbus. Braxton Miller um, had a 40-yard bomb with about 30 seconds left to win that game. So he's a couple plays away from going undefeated. And I think that Wisconsin team, um, because that team had J.J. Watt as well, if I remember correctly. I think that Wisconsin team definitely could have challenged LSU or Alabama um, had they gone undefeated. I think they could have could have won a national championship that year. Uh, so Russell Wilson had a great season with a great college quarterback, elevated Wisconsin. If you don't think he belongs in the top 10, I have to politely disagree with you. And now we enter my top five. And this is, I think this is a solid top five. I wouldn't want to replace any of these guys. If you want to mix up the order, I think you definitely could. Number five, I'm going with Troy Smith. Was at Ohio State 2003 to 2006. Easy top choice for the uh, top five. Three-year starter at Ohio State. I loved about him was every single season at Ohio State, he got better as a passer. Ended up developing an absolute cannon. He had 68 total touchdowns to 13 interceptions on his career. And he quietly rushed for over 1,100 rushing yards on his career as well. He was a slippery guy. I mean, early in his career, he was more so of a dual threat guy. Um, but he could also run, uh, throw the ball really well on the run as well. I think if you go up, go look up Troy Smith's highlights, some of his best and most signature throws in his careers was on the run. And then he obviously had that magical 2006 season. Ohio State went 12-0, and beat Michigan in that one versus two matchup. He won the Heisman in what remains to this day the third most lopsided Heisman win of all time behind O.J. Simpson and Joe Burrow. And, you know, had that Ohio State team not laid complete 
in the national championship versus Florida, including Troy Smith. He did not play very well at all. I think Troy Smith would be regarded a little bit higher and he could really challenge for that number one spot. Um, but a couple of reasons why he's not higher on this list. I think part of it is he was that Ohio State offense for those years he was there was just so, so talented. I mean, the receivers he was throwing to like Ted Gain and Anthony Gonzalez and San Antonio Holmes. I mean, that was like an NFL quality receiver room he was throwing to and a great defensive. I mean, sorry, great offensive line he was behind. Um, this throwing motion, I think, is part of the reason that he was drafted. I believe it was the fifth round. It was, it was almost a right-handed Tim Tebow, then that really long windup, um, which I think kind of hurts him as well. So there was a reason he was drafted in the fifth round. You know, with his mobility, his ability to improvise, his big arm, and his, you know, consistent accuracy, and I think just his ability to distribute the ball to his playmakers. He is kind of a prototypical just ball distributor. He can get the ball out. Um, sideline to sideline. He could really whip it. Um, I think that would just make him a great quarterback in any generation. So he's an easy choice for my top five. Number four, this is probably the most controversial choice on my list because I know how the public tends to feel about J.J. McCarthy, but I have him as the fourth best Big Ten quarterback of all time. And I think the biggest reason why people like to hate on J.J. McCarthy is because he doesn't put up the gaudiest stats, and he certainly doesn't. He's averaged only about 200 passing yards per game as a starter over the past two seasons. But frankly, my entire opinion about J.J. McCarthy changed after that Ohio State game this past season. Because um, there were three or four throws that had absolutely no business being completed. And where J.J. McCarthy had to put the ball literally in a hole the size of, of a dime. And he was able to do that, keep drives alive. And he was the biggest reason why Michigan was able to pull off that win. And really, in hindsight, J.J. McCarthy was just doing in that game what he's been, what he has done his entire career. Except he was on the biggest stage against a truly elite defense um, with the, against those Buckeyes. And I would say don't let Michigan's offensive approach fool you. Because J.J. McCarthy has a great arm. He has one of the best arms in college football. It's not utilized a ton in that Michigan offense, obviously, but he has a can. He can throw the ball really far, and there's not, I think, a spot on the field that he can't hit. He can layer the football and laser it in as well. Kind of has to work on his touch a little bit, I think, but that's more so of an NFL problem. And what's crazy about J.J. McCarthy is he can do it from different angles as well. I mean, we saw a couple times against Alabama in that Rose Bowl instances of him being hit as he threw and not being able to get his legs into it at all, not being able to generate any torque from his torso. It's literally just all arm, and he's tossing a dime still. And he's got 4-5 speed. Oh, don't, um, don't let that be forgotten either. He can really scramble and take off if he needs to. He stands at six foot three, so he's really good size as well. Like I mentioned, some of those throws against Ohio State, especially the ones he had on the run, were just silly. And I think the best thing about J.J. McCarthy, though, outside of his leadership, because he's a great leader, too, you know how he promised so much to this Michigan program and delivered on every single promise. But my favorite thing is that he takes care of the football. He has just nine interceptions over the past two seasons. A third of them came in one game in a non-conference game at the beginning of this season. Um, he has about a six-to-one touchdown to interception ratio, which is just ridiculously efficient. And the reason I have him at four and above someone like Troy Smith is that, you know, he has an ability to be comfortable as a pocket passer, sometimes even as a game manager, 
but he's also a really accurate downfield thrower. And he's really great with his legs. So I think he'd be, you know, running an offense where the quarterback run is a little more prominent, where you have to run some option plays. I think he would have no problem doing that. I think if you want to run like a five wide West Coast type offense, I think he's able to do that. I think he'd be able to sling the ball all over the field. I'll put it this way. I think if you put J.J. McCarthy in Ohio State's offense this past season, he would have been Heisman finalist at minimum. He would have put up close to, if not over, 4,000 total yards. And I think that we would be talking about this Ohio State team as one of the greatest teams of all time. They would have been the ones going 15-0 if they had J.J. McCarthy. Um, and finally, last point about him is that he is, I think he has an ability, showing his ability to elevate his play when his team needs it the most, when they need a play. He's able to go deliver in those crucial moments. Moments. He's a bona fide winner, and that's why J.J. McCarthy is my number four Big Ten quarterback of all time. Number three, going with the classic, Drew Brees, who was at Purdue from 1997 to 2000. Um, he started those last three seasons, and over those three seasons, he went 24 and 12. He completed 62% of his passes for over 35. Um, actually, this is on average. So over those three seasons, his average season was completing 62% of his passes for 3,600 yards and 31 total touchdowns. That was on average over three seasons in the Big Ten. He took Purdue to three straight bowl games, finished the season ranked in every season, and made the Rose Bowl his senior season in 2000. And listen, I mean, everyone knows who Drew Brees is. He's not the tallest guy, doesn't have the biggest arm, but he's one of the smartest quarterbacks to ever play the position. He's got pinpoint accuracy and he knows where to go with the ball on every play. But you also have to remember, ranking these guys as college quarterbacks, this was prior to any of his shoulder surgeries. His arm was plenty big for the college level. He could really sling it um, back before, you know, you, you got to kind of remove the vision of Drew Brees in his last few years at, at the Saints. He did have a cannon in college. And I feel like it might be a little funny, you know, I've talked about before these rankings, how I really prefer my college quarterback. To be able to run, and Drew Brees, you know, he's not a runner by any means, but, you know, if I can't have a quarterback that's going to take off and be a threat with his legs, I want a quarterback who I know is going to go make the right decisions, that I know can operate in offense and go make adjustments at the line of scrimmage. And that's what, and that's what he can do. And another reason why I have him so high is because what he meant to his team. Accomplishing what he accomplished at Purdue is unique. Um, it, you know, and so I can only imagine the kind of highs that Drew Brees would be able to achieve if he had a team like what J.J. McCarthy had around him. So that's why Drew Brees is number three. My number two Big Ten quarterback of all time is C.J. Stroud. Um, and it's you know great that C.J. Stroud's greatness is finally being realized by the country. I feel like I had to defend him against a lot of crazy Ohio State fans who thought he could be a problem at a lot of times. Um, and it's great to see him doing well. And despite him never winning a Big Ten title in his two years as a starter at Ohio State, he was still a two-time Heisman finalist and proved to be one of the most talented quarterbacks of his era. I mean, he has the poise, the leadership, the decision-making, the arm strength, mind-blowing accuracy. I mean, his ability to throw it on a rope, but also layer the football between like a cornerback and a safety um, or drop it in a bucket on the sideline like we saw him do with Jackson Smith and Jigba. Um, there's just, I've said it a few times, but there truly is not a throw on the field that CJ Stroud can't make. 
Over those two seasons, he completed 69% of his passes for over 8,000 yards, 85 touchdowns, 12 interceptions, which is better than a 7-1 to ratio. He had over 11 yards in attempts. So just absolutely ridiculous statistics. The only reason he's not number one on this list is because he waited until the very final game of his college career to prove that he was a capable scrambler, a willing user of his legs. And if he had played like that, like he did against Georgia in that playoff game throughout his entire career, I think Ohio State, um, you know, maybe could have won a national championship. And I think we perceive him a little bit differently. I think he'd be my easy number one pick. Like I said, I would like he's able to hit 35 yard dots on every single play, but at the college level, you don't need to do that. And, you know, seeing, I mean, we watched him as two years at college and he was only one game where he was a real threat with his legs. So for that reason, he's number two. And I give my number one spot to Justin Fields. And again, people might raise their eyebrows because if we were building an NFL team right now, CJ Stroud is the easy pick over Justin Fields. And I think again, recency bias about how CJ Stroud has ascended into stardom in the NFL while Justin Fields is kind of, you know, he still has a chance to be a great NFL quarterback. I think it's, you know, hard to, hard to be a great quarterback for an organization like the Bears, but his career definitely has not come to fruition like a lot of people hoped. But let's not for, make that forget how great Justin Fields was at college for Ohio State. From 2019 to 2020, he completed 68% of his passes for almost 5,500 yards, 78 total touchdowns, only nine interceptions. That's an 8.7 touchdown to interception ratio. I said JJ McCarthy was really impressive with six to one. Well, Justin Fields is almost 50% better than that. And he also had a little over 11 yards in attempts. He added 867 rushing yards. And again, we're also including this, the 2020 season where Ohio State only played seven games total. So his stats would even be gaudier. They had a normal season that year. Uh, Justin Fields lost only two games in his career. Um, you know, if Olave didn't run the wrong route uh, against uh, Clemson in that 2019 game, um, they, he very well could have been playing for two national championships. And I think that 2019 Ohio State team would have given Joe Burrow at LSU a better fight than what, what Clemson did that season. So, I mean, Justin Fields, he took care of the football at the college level. He had great accuracy. I mean, he was able to push the ball downfield so well. He had 4-3 speed. I mean, he was, I think, always the fastest player on the field. And he had an absolute camp. And if you ever think he doesn't, pull up that throw he had to Chris Olave in the second matchup against Clemson, where he threw the ball 70 yards from release points when Olave caught it in the end zone. It almost touched the ceiling. Like, it was one of the, still, the prettiest passes I've ever seen. And... His ability to scramble, make off-script plays, make guys miss in the open field, and be that threat with his legs is the reason why I, I give him the edge over C.J. Stroud at the college level. Um, definitely don't let his NFL reputation fool you. We're, bu we're building college teams here, and Justin Fields, as far as I'm concerned, is you know, the greatest quarterback the Big Ten has ever seen. So there is my uh, top 10 Big Ten quarterbacks of all time. Now, moving away from the hypothetical power rankings we like to do during the offseason, I'm going to tailor the focus now to the 2024 NFL Draft in a recurring segment that we'll have called Silent Stars. And the point of this segment is really to put a spotlight on Big Ten players that aren't 
talked about or heralded very much in the national media. Someone you're not going to you know, be seen talk about if you turn on ESPN or Fox. Really want to put a spotlight on great players that aren't talked about very much. So for this edition, we're going to go through some Big Ten prospects aren't being talked about very much or not consensus first round guys. But these are guys that I think can have a big impact um, in maybe their rookie season or have a great NFL career. And mainly guys that I think are going to soar up draft boards once the NFL draft process really begins. The first guy I want to talk about is honestly one of my favorite defenders from the Big Ten Conference in the 2023 season. That's Indiana linebacker and Casey. And he had just an incredible season last year for the Hoosiers and was really one of the the rocks of a defense that really had an up and down season, had some great games, but also had some dismal performances. But Aaron Casey was steady through it all. He had 109 tackles on the season, 20 TFLs, six and a half sacks, three pass breakups, and three forced fumbles. And he's, he was at Indiana for five years, and he saw continued improvement over each of those five seasons. He's good size for an inside linebacker at six foot two, 230 pounds. And I think he's one of the surest tacklers in the entire draft. Now, he's not an elite blitzer, but you know he doesn't have a big arsenal of pass rushing moves, but he projects mainly as an inside linebacker. So I don't think he'll be dependent on very much to blitz at the next level. But what he is great is, is at run support. He has great instincts. He knows where he has to be. He's quick to diagnose a play and he has good closing speed. And once he get his, gets his arms on you, he's making that tackle. He's also above average in pass coverage. He can man up tight ends or running backs, and he has good enough instincts to play his own defense and pass off receivers and stick to his assignment and really know where he belongs. And I think a guy with him, with his experience and his athleticism and his instincts is someone who can be an immediate impact player as a starter, as a rookie. And he honestly reminds me a lot of Jack Campbell, who is Iowa's linebacker and was the first-round pick by the Lions last year. He had 95 tackles as a rookie. He isn't quite as big as uh, Jack Campbell is, but I think Aaron Casey has a very similar skill set to him, and I think he could end up having a very similar rookie season, only at a much discounted price, because right now, he's being projected, from what I'm seeing, is around the 6th to 7th round. I think he can work his way up to be one of the first names called on day three and be a fourth-round pick. And I think where he'll really shine... Um, is it during the interview process? Because he's a really great leader as well. And moving on, I'm going to stick to the defensive side of the ball for our next silent star. That's Minnesota safety, Tyler Newbin. Now, if you follow Big Ten football, you know Tyler Newbin. He was first team all Big Ten, consensus first team all Big Ten this past season. He could have been a, day, a solid day two pick last year, but he returned for his fifth season and ended up being, I think, really the only bright spot from that Minnesota defense last year. Uh, he's a three-year starter over the past three seasons, has put up 160 tackles, 12 interceptions, and nine pass breakups, and he's really a do-it-all safety. He's the ideal size you want at safety position in the NFL at six foot two, 220 pounds. Uh, he's great at tracking the ball and making a play on it, but he's not like a finesse safety who's looking to only get that interception. He has no problem just batting the ball down or blowing that shoulder and delivering big hits when he needs to. He has instincts, he has speed, and he has the strength really needed to come up in run support and fill in those running lanes. Um, his only weakness that I can really see is he doesn't have elite speed. So if someone gets a step on him, Tyler Newbin isn't the one to kind of flip his hips and really get, gain, gain speed on him. But with as much experience as he has, 
I think he's a guy who continually put himself in the right position and not get paid. And he's certainly not going to be the sexiest pick that anyone can make over the first couple of days in the NFL draft, but he has a very high floor. And I think he can be an immediate starting safety for a good portion of the league. I think his ability to track the ball and his instincts and then his um, the power he shows when he comes up to um, you know, defend the run, he honestly reminds me a little bit of Harrison Smith, the Viking safety. And he's honestly someone that's aging a little bit. We're starting to see the downward trajectory in his career. Wouldn't be surprised if a team uh, like the Vikings end up taking him with um, you know early in the draft. Right now, I'm seeing him projected around in the second round, but I think he can easily work his way into the first round think he can definitely be the first safety taken off the board. Sticking with Minnesota for our third silent star, I'm going to go with Minnesota and Brevin Span Ford. And I think Brevin Span Ford was the most criminally underutilized tight end, probably one of the most criminally underutilized offensive weapons in all of college football last season. He stands at six foot seven, 270 pounds. And he's a true athletic specimen. He had 42 catches for 500 yards in 2022. And I came into last season expecting him to have a big season. Thought he had a really good chance to become the consensus Titan two in this draft behind Brock Bowers. He had a disappointing 2023 season, finished with only 25 catches. And a drop in his production, I think, can be blamed more so on poor quarterback play. I talked about the season Ethan Kallik Manis has had earlier in this episode. And also inept coaching. Um, they lost their offensive coordinator, Kirk Chiraka, to Rutgers last year. And it showed the Minnesota offense was out of whack all season long. I thought they had one of the most talented group of pass catchers in the, in the Big Ten last year. And it was just never, that talent was never realized. But don't let his drop in production fool you because he is a great prospect. He has soft, reliable hands. And he has no problem going up and making contested catches and using his body to shield a defender. Uh, like we've seen so many great tight ends do, you know, rising of guys like Rob Ronkowski and, and Antonio Gates. He has that ability to turn his body almost like you're, you know, going up for a rebound in basketball and box that defender out and bring down a contested catch. Um, so he really has ability to make a play in the passing game, but he also has the size and the strength to fight off press coverage as well and get that and maybe get that separation on a defender. And he has. Um, the speed and athleticism to then be a real wrecking ball in the open field. He has that yard after catch ability. He's not a polished blocker, but again, he's six foot seven, 270 pounds. He has the frame to develop into a great blocker. Um, he definitely does need some fine tuning. I think, you know, I mentioned he, you know, in theory has an ability to gain separation off defenders, but I think at the college level, he's gotten really used to having being so much bigger than everyone else and being able to just rely on his size to go up and get jump balls. I don't think he works to get separation as much as he should. And that definitely won't fly in the NFL. Regardless though, he has the measurables that I I think every NFL GM and NF, every NFL coach wants on their team. You want an athlete an athlete like Griffin Span Ford. So I think during the NFL combine and during his pro day, he's gonna jump off the board. To some teams, I think he's going to shoot up the draft boards because right now I'm seeing him projected around an early day three pick, fourth, fifth round. I definitely think he can work his way into into day two. And you know, despite his disappointing season last year, I still think there's a really good chance that Brevin Spanford can be the second tight end taken in the 2024 NFL draft. 
And next, we're going to uh, stay on the offensive side of the ball with some pass catchers. Go with Illinois wide receiver Isaiah Williams. And he's another guy, if you follow Big Ten football, you've probably heard of. He was a four-star dual-threat com- quarterback coming out of high school um, in 2019 when he joined Illinois. And then he switched to wide receiver in 2021. And 2022 was his first full season where he had a full offseason to develop into a wide receiver. And he's been amongst the best wide receivers in the Big Ten uh, over the past two seasons. He's just never talked about on the national level. He had 164 receptions over the past two seasons, actually led the Big Ten in catches last year, yes, over Marvin Harrison Jr. And I think he has the potential to be a really great slot receiver. He stands at 5'10", 185 pounds. He has some of the best set of hands in the entire draft. You know, he's not going to wow you with a ton of one-handed behind-your-catch OBJ-type catches, but he does not drop passes. Simple. He's a shifty route runner with really good change of direction, and he does have the speed needed to break off of defenders, you know, especially on those drag or crossing routes where he's in man-man coverage. His speed is good enough to gain separation on those routes alone, and he has that athleticism and speed to be a yard-after-catch threat. And he's a really intelligent player, too. I think, I mean, if you've read anything about him over the past couple of seasons, players and coaches rave about his intelligence and his leadership as a player. But I think that will make him really effective on option routes too. I think he'll really know where he has to settle in zone defense in order to be that security blanket that slot receivers so often are for their quarterbacks. So obviously wide receivers like Marvin Harrison Jr. draw eyeballs and get the high picks and rightfully so. You know, having a guy on the outside who can consistently win jump balls, consistently take the top off a of defense, can consistently be considered open, even if they're, you know, blanketed by a receiver or in double coverage. You know, that kind of playmaker at wide receiver is invaluable in today's NFL. Um, but at the same time, what's almost equally as important is having a reliable slot receiver, a shifty, intelligent player who can, you know, be relied on to eat up catches and be that quarterback's security blanket but also do a little bit extra after the catch. Like Isaiah Williams is a great quarterback. There is a reason, I mean, sorry, a great athlete. There was a reason he was a four-star prospect coming out of high school. So, you know, don't be fooled. Isaiah Williams is not going to be putting prime Antonio Brown numbers from the slot. He's not going to be stacking 1,500-yard, 10-plus touchdown seasons. And, you know, he's never going to be a wide receiver that you talk about as one of the top five receivers in the NFL at any given time. He's just not that kind of receiver. But He can certainly be a starting slot in the NFL, I think, as early as his rookie season. I think if he ends up in a good situation where, you know, with competent quarterback play where they need some help in the slot, Chiefs certainly need some help with receiver. The Bills have been looking for answers beyond Stephon Diggs for a few years. Maybe even the Chargers with Keenan Allen starting to age. He might not even be with the team next year. There's a few good situations where he could land. I think if he does, wouldn't be shocked to see him put 100-plus catch seasons by year you know, two, three, or four. And right now, the biggest thing that is, is shocking me is he's being projected as a border seventh-round round, seventh pick. Some people are projecting that he won't even get drafted. I think that he'll have the ability to become one of the top slot receivers in the entire draft, and I think he could hear his name called very early on day three. I think he could work his way up to be a fourth round. And the last silent star that I'm going to talk about is on the offensive side of the ball, Wisconsin running back Braylon Allen. And doesn't anyone, any Big Ten fan knows who Braylon Allen is. He's been one of the most productive running backs in the Big Ten over the past three seasons with 3,500 yards, 35 touchdowns, 
and over six yards a carry uh, over the past three seasons. But I'm shocked because he is not being even whispered about as the potential RB1 in this class. And he stands at six foot two, 245 pounds. That's about the same size as Derrick Henry. And he runs a 4-4-40. And that's not going to be the fastest 40 time we see out of the running backs in the draft or the combine. Um, but it's devastating speed for someone his size to have. Now, he's not an elite route runner. Um, he's not going to be doing complicated uh, running you know, routes out of the backfield. And you wouldn't really expect someone his, someone his size to be able to do that. But he has developed a really good set of hands at Wisconsin. And he is more than capable of reliably you know, catching swim passes and getting screen passes and making plays out of those. His first two seasons at Wisconsin, he had only 21 catches. He had 28 last season. And let's also not forget that the offensive line that he was running behind at Wisconsin were not as good as offensive lines you typically expect Wisconsin to have. And, you know, they were not... This Wisconsin offensive line over the past three years, they were not as good as the lines that guys like Jonathan Taylor, Melvin Gordon, James White ran behind. Um, he also had some really poor quarterback play over the past three seasons. And despite all that working against him, uh, Braylon Allen has been as good as any running back in college football over the past three seasons. And you know, thing that's working in his favor is the fact that he's just turned 20 years old this January, just 20. And it seems like every year that goes by the a lifespan of the NFL running back goes down. So I think having youth on his size, I mean, on his side, is a great sign. And I think it'll lead to him being able to be still a really effective running back beyond his rookie contract because, you know, it depends where he'll get drafted, but it lines up where his rookie contract will expire and he'll just be entering his prime as an NFL running back. And you know, there isn't really much he can't do at running back. And I'm just shocked that he's not getting any chatter at all about being the potential running back one in this class. I've seen his value range anywhere from RB3 right behind like Blake Corum and Jonathan Brooks from Texas um, to outside the top 10, you know, behind guys like Will Shipley and Marshawn Lloyd from USC. I think that is I mean, perplexing to say the least. I think his measurables are going to stand out at the combine or the pro day, wherever he does, you know, his, his shuttle runs and his, um, his 40 yard dash, his bench press, all that stuff is going to jump out uh, to NFL GMs. I think because of that, he's going to soar up draft boards. You know, right now he's being projected uh, borderline day two, three pick. I'm seeing him kind of third, fourth round. Will be floor if he makes it to day three. I think he's definitely one of the top five running backs taken off the board. I think Braylon Allen can work his way into the second round and ch challenge Jonathan Brooks and Blake Corum as the RB1 on this draft. Obviously, it seems like consensus that there isn't a single running back that is going to draw first round grades or first round consideration but i think braylon allen will be in that cons that conversation come april or may to be the first running back taken off the board and finally to wrap up this inaugural episode of the big 10 blitz i'm going to take a look at my way too early preseason top 12 the 2024 college football season um and you know you'll see as we get into this i feel like there's a pretty clear top four um, you can maybe fiddle around with that, how they're arranged a little bit. But then after that, five through, I don't know, about 17, I really wrestled with. I think any of those teams could have arguments to be left out of the top 12 entirely. And so it got really difficult. So a few teams that you won't see listed here, but I definitely considered are Oklahoma, Florida State, Clemson, Utah, 
and Tennessee. Um, all five of those teams I gave really hard consideration for, but for you know different reasons, they just didn't quite make the cut. Um, but let's jump into it. My number 12 team in my way too early 2024 top 25 is going to be the Missouri Tigers. First off, an 11-2 season where they beat Ohio State in that New Year's Six Bowl game. Missouri has a, a lot to look forward to next season. I think college football playoff is a real possibility for them. Quarterback Brady Cook and wide receiver Luther Burden, they both return. And they do lose their star running back, Cody Schrader. But they added one of the best running backs in the transfer portal in Georgia State running back, Marcus Carroll. He had 1,350 yards rushing last year and 13 touchdowns. They also added a lot to an offense, their offensive line via the portal. Really talented 2024 recruiting class. Um, so I think their offense is definitely trending upwards. Their defense is going to be a little bit of a rebuild. They lose some key guys on that side of the ball. They were active in the portal, added the number one defensive end prospect and consensus top five player in the 2024 class. Um, but on the negative side, they did lose their defensive coordinator, Blake Baker, to LSU. And that certainly hurts. I mean, losing your de great defensive coordinator, Baker, was hurts. And losing him to someone in your own conference hurts even more. So I do think that defense, which was you know top 10 unit last year, is going to take a step back. But I think their offense should be able to make up for it. And looking at their schedule, I think it allows them to start 7-0, entering back-to-back -back games against Alabama and Oklahoma both of which are also winnable for Missouri. And then they end the season with South Carolina, Mississippi State, and Arkansas. So I think they'll be favored at least in 10 games. And I think a 10-2 season could very well be just enough for them to get into the playoff. But I think even 11, 12-0 season is not off the table. I mean, um, especially with the easy start to the schedule, they can definitely find their groove in the back half of that season. So Missouri is my number 12 team. Number 11, going to go with the Penn State Nittany Lions. And this was a difficult one to, to rank. Part of me wanted them, thought they deserved to be in the top 10, and then part of me really felt like they should be out of this rankings entirely. And it's no secret that their atrocious pass offense needs to make major strides next season if they want to make the playoff uh, and challenge to win the Big 10. And part of that does fall on Drew Aller. He was obviously rattled and inconsistent against both Ohio State and Michigan. He just didn't really turn into the quarterback that a lot of Penn State fans hoped he would be last year. But I think just as much of his struggles had to do with uh, Mike Yurchich, offensive coordinator who ran that offense into the ground. Um, and also a lot of it has to lot relies on the development of his wide receivers because it was evident against in that Ohio State game and against Michigan, two of the best secondaries in the entire country that Penn State just did not have the playmakers they needed to go win one-on-one -on -one matchups in that secondary. And they just have not acquired and developed talent wide receiver nearly as well as they used to. I mean, there was a stretch there when they would produce guys like Allen Robinson, Chris Godwin, Jahan Dotson, KJ Hamler. And they were pretty consistently producing quality receivers. And they consistently had one of the best wide receiver rooms in college football. And all of a sudden, I mean, they whiffed on last year's transfers, Dante Cephas, Malik McLean never really became the playmakers that Penn State fans needed them to be. And so far this year, the only addition they have in that room is Ohio State wide receiver Julian Fleming. I know Penn State fans are really celebrating that addition. He's the former number one wide receiver in his class. He's a Pennsylvania kid. But I think any Ohio State fan would tell you they're glad that Julian Fleming is finally out of that room because, I mean, he just never met his potential. His, in his career was riddled with injuries and drops. And it seems like those injuries have kind of affected him. He is not 
you know, a, a breakaway athlete. He is not, um, he's just not the same receiver that many people thought he was when he was coming out of high school. And the offensive line as well for Penn State should probably take a step back. Um, you know, they do bring in a really talented 20, 2024 class for that offensive line, but I mentioned it before, relying on true freshmen to start and be impact players on an offensive line in a conference like the Big Ten is a big ask. And then they lose Olu Fashanu, Caden Wallace, and Hunter Norzad on that offensive line. Um, they do return Nick Singleton and Katron Allen, which remain one of the best backfield duos in all of college football. And you hope that Drew Aller develops, but there's still just a lot of question marks around this offense. Despite all that, that negativity I just went into, I have Penn State in the top 12 for two reasons. And the first one is the addition of Kansas offensive coordinator Andy Kotelnicki. He, I think, was a splash hire at the, at the offensive coordinator. He has a multiple pro-style offense that uses spread concepts. And I think that fits really well with uh, Penn State's personnel. It puts less stress on the quarterback to sit in the pocket, get through three progressions, and deliver an accurate ball. It's more so predicated on just getting the ball in the hands of your playmakers and letting them do something. So I'm really excited to see how Kotelnicki will utilize Nick Singleton and Katron Allen because um, they are very underrated pass catchers too. So I think they could see both of them see a much, ex much more expansive role in 2024 because I know some Penn State fans were really disappointed with how they were utilized last year. And also, I think their defense should be great again. They got Tom Allen to come in and replace defensive coordinator Manny Diaz. And I know I was uh, talking about how Tom Allen probably should have been showed the door at Indiana uh, earlier in this episode, but that doesn't change that he's a great defensive coordinator. And this happens all the time. Uh, you know, a coach can be a great coordinator and not a great uh, head coach. And that was the case for Tom Allen. They do have to replace the majority of their secondary, their top two defensive ends and their top linebacker, but they return Abdul Carter and Kobe King at linebacker. I think they will be one of the Big Ten's best linebacker duos. And they have a great interior line led by Devon Ellis. Um, they added a couple of transfers to boost that second. I expect Penn State to, again, have a top five um, defense in the Big Ten. They also have an easy start to their schedule, so you should easily start 5-0. I think that will allow some of these new faces and you know new coordinators to uh, get adjusted and kind of mesh well and allow them to play their best football in the back half of the season. Number 10. I'm going with Arizona and, you know, I originally put them in there before uh, losing Jed Fish, which head coach is a huge loss. And it does, this remains to be seen. I have a feeling this will be the highest I have Arizona um, this entire preseason. But the reason I have them at 10 right now is because as it stands today, again, Friday, January 19th, uh, they still have a top 10 roster in terms of talent. They had um, you know, they had one of the youngest starting 22 in all of college football last year. And the majority of them, if they don't transfer, would return. Um, and that includes four starters on the offensive line and quarterback Noah Fafita, who was the best freshman quarterback in the country last year, 72% completion, almost 3000 passing yards and 25 touchdowns to six interceptions. And listen, a lot of guys have entered the transfer portal. And they have this 30-day window to potentially move. And I'm sure a good portion of this roster is waiting to see who the new, who the new hire is before making any decisions. So again, Arizona at 10 is very tentative. But you know they haven't had guys that have hit the portal commit anywhere else. And until I see these guys in the portal commit somewhere else, I'm operating under the assumption that they will be back at their respective schools. 
Um, it's just hard for me to predict, predict otherwise. And who knows? There have been rumblings that maybe Arizona can get defensive coordinator Johnny Nansen back. He just left to go coordinate Texas's defense. So I think that's the way the players would like. So if somehow Arizona can get Johnny Nansen out of that contract and come back to be the head coach, I think there's a really good chance that this roster stays intact. And if they do stay intact, I mean, this is a team that I think has top 10 cal- talent in college football. They're riding a seven-game win streak into 2024. And uh, they're playing in the wide-open Big 12 that doesn't have a single great team. So I think there's a litany of teams that could be in line for 10-win seasons. So again, until I see some of these guys in the transfer portal actually commit elsewhere, I'm operating under the assumption they will return. And if Arizona keeps their roster together, regardless of who the new coach is, they have one of the most talented rosters in college football. Sticking with the Big 12, I'm going to go with Oklahoma State in my number nine spot. They return virtually everyone on their um and their offense, including their entire offensive line, All-American running back Ollie Gordon, who had an absolutely ridiculous season last year, and quarterback Alan Bauman, who was granted a seventh year by the NCAA. So as long as offensive coordinator Casey Dunn sticks around, because there are rumors that he could be connected to the Arizona vacancy, this should be one of the nation's best offenses, hands down. Um, their defensive coordinator, Brian Nardo, enters his second year. And he implemented that 3-3-5 defense for Oklahoma State, and they definitely struggled early on, but played a lot better towards the end of the season. They returned the two anchors of their defense and safety, Trey Rucker. He had 100 tackles last year. And defensive end, Colin Oliver, I think he's on All-American watch. He had 15.5 TFLs and six sacks last year. So they do have to replace a few other pieces. But again, he was implementing that 3-3-5 defense, and I mentioned this earlier. It's one of the hardest defenses to implement in a single season, especially at the college level. So I expect their defense to take a step forward next year. And I said it with Arizona, the Big 12 is wide open. There's plenty of pretty good teams. There's a, I mean, I think an argument can be made that essentially everyone in that conference is bowl-eligible bowl caliber. But there's not a single great team. So I think with Oklahoma State's insane amount of experience that they have, especially on the offensive side of the ball, there's no reason that Oklahoma State can't win 10, 11 games and win that conference. At number eight, I'm going to go with the defending national champion, Michigan Wolverines. And I mentioned it earlier, there is just too much talent to replace on both sides of the ball. You know, they return Rod Moore, Will Johnson, and Josiah Stewart, Mason Graham on the defensive side of the ball. All of them have all-American potential. So, they should still be a top five defense in the Big Ten, a top 10 unit nationally, but that's a far cry from the generational defense they had in 2023. And the defense, if they want to compete for a national championship again, will probably have to be better than it was this past year because their offense loses an insane amount of talent. I mean, they have to replace every starter on the offensive line, Blake Corum, who's arguably the best running back Michigan has ever seen. They lose their top two receivers, what has been a pretty underperforming wide receiver unit under Jim Harbaugh. I mean, he's done a great job at rebuilding Michigan, but that wide receiver room has always kind of lacked talent compared to the rest of the roster. And with J.J. McCarthy gone, they're looking at likely starting Alex Orgy at quarterback. And he's a, he's a special talent with his legs, but he has a long ways to go as far as developing as a passer and being able to do what he needs to carry this offense. Um. And then there's the Jim Harbaugh thing. I mentioned it earlier. I'm operating under the assumption that he's going to be gone. If he gets an NFL offer, he's 100% out of there. And that will be devastating for their chances. There is a good chance that the coaching staff could still largely stay together, even if Harbaugh goes. 
Um, but it's just so hard to predict. And if Harbaugh goes, there could be other transfers out of the program. And I'm just not sure that Sharon Moore, he seems like the favorite to replace Jim Harbaugh if, if he ends up going. I'm not confident that he has some tricks up his sleeve to make up the deficit that they have um, talent-wise. So there's a lot still up in the air. They should still have a great defense. Part of me feels like this is also going to be the highest I have Michigan in my preseason rankings throughout this entire offseason. But as it stands today, I feel like number eight is appropriate place for the defending national champions because they do still have a great you know inst- culture at the, at the program. They will have a great defense. Um, we'll just have to wait and see. I'm sure they'll have some movement coming up. Number seven, we're going to go with Notre Dame. And they enter a pivotal third year under Marcus Freeman. They've been kind of up and down so far. Last year, they did finish with 10 wins and ranked inside the top 15, which at face level seems like a great season, but they blew that game against Ohio State and they got embarrassed by Louisville. Now they lose quarterback Sam Hartman, who was supposed to be the whole reason that they would be college football playoff contenders last year. Um, But I think their defense should be top 10 in the country um, easily next year and should have one of the best defenses in the entire country. They return a ton of starters um, highlighted by... Linebacker uh, Jack Kaiser and safety Xavier Watts. Both of them have All-America potential. And then they bring in LSU's Mike Denbrock to be their new offensive coordinator to uh, replace uh, Gerard Parker, who left to go be Troy's head coach. And yes, LSU's offense did have um, Jaden Daniels last year, who made up a lot of their efficiency. But nonetheless, LSU's offense still led the entire country in scoring and total offense. They add Duke quarterback Riley Leonard. He struggled with injury in the back half of the season last year, but he's a really talented guy. And he's a seasoned veteran with a lot of starts under his belt. And he's a mobile guy. It adds a whole new dimension to this Notre Dame offense that they did not have under Sam Hartman. So they're on on defense. I mentioned before they return a lot of guys, return the interior of that great defensive line. And they add a couple transfer receivers, which is a position group they desperately needed to upgrade. So all in all, I think Notre Dame is going to be more talented next year. I think Marcus Freeman has this program heading in the right direction. I think they'll take another step forward next year. Um, I you know I have a hard time seeing them go undefeated. They have a really hard schedule again, but I think Notre Dame has one of the higher floors in college football of any team in college football, which is why I have them at number seven. Number six, I'm going to go with the Ole Miss Rebels. Um, I was kind of a hater on them. I was... Them and Tennessee both, I was not a fan of at all last year. Tennessee kind of proved me right. I think they're frauds all year long. Ole Miss, though, their spanking of Penn State and that Peach Bowl, I think, legitimized Ole Miss uh, a little bit more than I was giving them credit for and legitimized what Lane Kiffin is doing at Ole Miss. I mean, he delivered the Rebels' first 11-win campaign in program history last year, and they get a huge boost next year with the return of quarterback Jackson Dart. Um, they do have to, you know, a lot of other pieces to replace on offense, but with Jackson Dart coming back, I think they should still be one of the best offenses in the, in the, in the SEC. And Lane Kiffin, he's always been active in the portal. He's at it once again. He has the number one transfer class in the entire country by a wide margin. And again, with Arizona, with Washington and Alabama all having their entire roster up for grabs, essentially, they could add even more guys to that. Um, He's really retooled his defense via the transfer portal, has key additions at every single level. So I think their defense, which was not good last year, could step up and be you know, average at the least, which is really all they need. So I think it can be dangerous when you do bring in so many transfers and have such high level of player turnover. But, you know, stop me if you've heard this before. 
uh, Ole Miss once again has a cakewalk of a schedule, at least to start the season. They open the season with Furman, Middle Tennessee, Wake Forest, Georgia Southern, Kentucky, and South Carolina. That seems like an easy 6-0 start for me. I think that'll allow this team that has, that's going to have a lot of new faces gel and be playing their best football in the back half of the season. Number five, I'm going to go with Alabama. And this is the third case in my top 12 of having a team that, you know, this is probably the highest I will have them throughout the entire season. And again, I mentioned it before with Arizona. Alabama's had a lot of transfers hit, or guys hit the transfer portal, but until they actually commit somewhere else, I have to operate on the assumption that they will return. And that it's a real possibility for a lot of those guys. And, and I think the losses that they've had so far really will impact Alabama more so two to three years from now rather than immediately in 2024. Um, Washington head coach Kalen DeBauer, I think he's as good of a hire as Alabama could have hoped for if they couldn't get Dan Lanning, Steve Sarkeesian, or Bill Belichick. I think DeBauer is right up there as one of the best coaches they could have possibly gotten. He's a great offensive mind. Jalen Milrow returns should be one of the early favorites for the Heisman next year. Um, Jam Miller and Justice Haynes, uh, they're going to be ready to step up at running back, which is a position Alabama really never seems to struggle with. They have three returning starters on the offensive line, tentatively, of course, in a stacked tight end room. I think this offense has all the potential in the world to be potent again. And they do have a lot to replace in the back end of the defense. But if you're going to have a kind of weaker, inexperienced secondary, you have to at least have to have a strong defensive line and get after the pass rusher and have a pass rush that can get after the passer. And Alabama will have just that. Tim Keenan, Jaheim Otis, Tim Smith uh, form, I think, one of the SEC's best defensive lines. And again, a lot of things can change. A lot of guys could go. And this could end up being a rebuilding year for Alabama. But I have a lot of faith in Kalen DeBauer, and I think his biggest challenge at Alabama will be maintaining the the culture and talent that Saban has delivered um, over the past few years and winning three to five years from now, rather than winning with the talent that Nick Saban left him. So I still fully expect, unless, unless things change drastically as he assembles his coaching staff and um, more guys transfer out, I fully expect Alabama to be in the thick of the SEC race and in the college football playoff race next season, despite the retirement of Nick Saban. Number four, and these top four teams are pretty cemented, and I'm going to be, I'll be shocked if, I mean, the order here might change a little bit, but I'll be shocked if this isn't my top four, you know, the week before the season starts. Uh, Number four, I'm going to go with Oregon. I touched them before in the trends report. Um, I think Dan Lanning is building a powerhouse at Oregon, and they're ready to win big in this new era of college football. Um, you know, he's been bringing in top 10 classes. He's been active in the portal. He's been able to help develop and improve quarterbacks. Um, and you know, just look at the addition of Dylan Gabriel and Evan Stewart in the portal. They're going to be electric for that duck offense next year, along with an offensive line, which should continue to improve. And I think that Oregon is also the only former Pac-12 team that's going to the Big Ten that's built to defend these run heavier offensive line dominant Big Ten teams. So I said it before, Oregon is right up at the top of the Big Ten in terms of my early favorites to win the conference. Um, I think we'll have every opportunity to beat Ohio State and earn one of those top four spots in the bye week in the playoff. Um, Either way, I'd be surprised if this Oregon team does not make the playoff next year. Number three, I'm going with Texas. The Quinn Ewers return is probably the biggest decision anyone made 
as far as the NFL draft um, so far this season. And I think that really helps cushion the blow of losing most of their skill position players. But they also do return four offensive linemen. So with Kuhn-Ewers and a good offensive line, they've been recruiting running back and wide receiver well enough that this offense will once again be difficult to stop. All eyes are going to be on the defense this spring because they have holes at linebacker and at the interior of that defensive line. But they should have a good pass rush. They returned three guys that had five or more sacks last year. They had Clemson safety Andrew Makuba to help bolster um, the pass defense that definitely needs to improve if they want to compete for a nas- national championship. So I think Texas should be in the thick of the race of the SEC in 2024. And number two, I'm going to go with Ohio State. This was a really toss-up between Ohio State and Georgia for number one, number two. I'm sure they're going to go back and forth a lot. Um, but Ohio State has the best backfields in the country by far with Quinshawn Judkins and Travion Henderson. They have... Again, one of, if not the best receiving cores in the entire country, headlined by the return of Emeka Abuka. They have four returning offensive linemen and the addition of Alabama center Seth McLaughlin, plus maybe more additions to come via the portal. And the defense has the makings of not only the best in the entire country, but all-time great defense. They return almost every starter. And, um, you know, what Jim Knowles has done with that defense in a few years has been really magical i think they have hands down the best secondary in the country and i think they definitively have the highest of any team in college football if ohio state ends up coming out having uh you know a 2019 lsu-esque season where they beat every single team by two or more possessions and almost walk to a national championship i wouldn't be shocked but i have them at number two because i don't think at least at this point from what i uh, will howard is an easy plug and play option at quarterback He's definitely an upgrade from Kyle McCord last season. I think he will definitely help elevate this offense. But, you know, I just haven't seen him play in an Ohio State uniform. I think the string will show us a lot. It remains to be seen if he can meet the lofty standards that Ohio State has for their quarterbacks. And the offensive line is still a question mark. Um, You know, figures to make strides with so many returning starters. But they have a long way to improve because this is a unit that was, you know, 90th in the country in rush offense. And they have to be a lot better there. So. Still a couple of question marks there, and then I'll go with Georgia, number one. I trust Kirby Smart to reload on defense. Once again, field a top 10 unit. I think he's earned that kind of expectation. And the return of um, you know their top defensive end and linebacker, Smail Mondan. I think I pronounced that right. Um, but he's the linebacker Mondan who has battled injuries in 2023, but he's going to re- return to a starting position. That certainly helps. And then the offense should continue to improve. Carson Beck returns. They add Florida running back uh, Trevor Etienne, who's one of the most electric in the entire country. And they just have a stockpile of talent at tight end and receiver, even with the loss of Brock Bowers. I mean, what his backup was able to do when Bowers missed a few games was, was very telling. But for once, this, uh, this schedule is actually a little bit of a challenge for Georgia. They host Clemson in the opener. Then they have road trips to Alabama, Texas, and Ole Miss. So, you know... Them going 12-0 in the regular season is definitely far from a shoe-in, but at the end of the day, Georgia has won 30 of their past 31 games, and they return enough talent for them to be number one, at least at this point in the season, until someone knocks them off or someone looks good enough for me to put them ahead. So that's my top 12. And before we wrap up this episode, I will show you kind of what the, the playoff bracket would look like with these rankings. So if you're watching on YouTube, you can see it on your screen now. Um, but obviously with, I did not have an ACC team in my top 12 
and I did not have um, a non-Power 5 or a group of five team in there as well. And the way the playoff works, the top four conference, top four ranked conference champions get the bye, and uh, one spot is guaranteed for um, the group of five teams. So we'd have to bring in two teams, and that would actually kick, kick out Penn State and Missouri from the bracket. So the way this would shake out, uh, Georgia, obviously the number one spot, they would be awaiting um, the matchup of Ole Miss and Notre Dame. That could be a really fun matchup um, at Ole Miss. would be a really fun environment, and it'd be kind of two very contrasting um, approaches and two very contrasting offenses. Um, and then below them, on that same side of the bracket, we would have Florida State as the number four seed. Um, I did not have them ranked, but they're right there on the doorstep. And at this point, they're probably my preseason ACC favorite. So they would grab that fourth bye week, and they would be awaiting the winner of Texas and Memphis. I have Memphis right now as my preseason favorite to uh, grab that group of five spot, but a lot can change. I think that could be a, a sneaky game. I don't think anyone would put it past Texas to drop a game to someone like Memphis. and. And I could be a really high scoring game too. So that's one half of the bracket. Jump to the other side. Uh, Ohio State, who is the number two seed. This is so exciting. They would be awaiting the matchup of Michigan and Alabama. I mean, talk about a, tr a stacked little bracket there. Three of the biggest names in college football, a rematch of the Rose Bowl in Tuscaloosa, and the winner would have to go on and take Ohio State. That is just, I mean, that's college football at its best right there. And then below Ohio State, we would have the number three seed, Oklahoma State. Um, they would be the third highest ranked conference champion. I have them as my preseason Big 12 favorite. And they would be awaiting the matchup of Oregon and Arizona. And that'd be another fun, high-scoring game. I mean, that kind of bracket below them with Oklahoma State, that's kind of the, uh, the points bracket, if you will. And so I just think looking at this gives so much reason to be excited for 2024. I know a lot of people have been down on college football as a, as, as a sport, you know, with, with NIL and these guys that are been in, in college now for six, seven, eight years. Um, but when you see a bracket like this with so many great matchups and so many teams that are on a path to win a championship, there's going to be more meaningful football being played in November. And this playoff is going to be so much fun. I just think the state of college football, despite how a lot of people talk about it is in such good hands. And I can't wait for this season. The 2020, I mean, the 12 team playoff is going to be absolutely electric and I can't wait. And that's going to do it for the inaugural episode of the Big Ten Blitz. I know this was a long one. Really appreciate you hanging in there. It was a lot of fun going through this and hopefully this is going to be a monthly occurrence as we work through the 2024 offseason and start work making our way to the start of the college football season, which can't come soon enough. So thank you for watching the Big Ten Blitz. I've been your host, Sean. If you've liked it, go ahead and give us a like, follow us on Twitter, subscribe to us on YouTube, um, and check out our website, thefloorslap.com, because we have college basketball going right now, and my buddy Jordan has tons of great content coming out on a weekly basis. So it's been real. I'll catch you here next month in February. And hope you enjoy the NFL playoffs because that's the last bit of football we have to enjoy until September. Bye.